Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, July the 13th, 843-661-0937 is our number. I thought about this last night. Um, should we or should we not uh, make a list? And when we go on the air, we list these stories that are out there kicking because every now and then I'll get a text or a call from during the show. Um, did you know about this? Have you read about this? Here's a story about this, X, Y, or Z. Um, I am somewhat familiar with whatever you are. I mean, if you're familiar with the story, I am somewhat familiar um, with that same story. And and at times I make a calculus and I don't think the story would be that interesting, but maybe our listeners do. And I think we need, oh, let me back up. I need to do a better job of making sure we lay out these eight or 10 or 12 stories out there that are not just interesting to me, but interesting to you. Um, so you're saying the there's stories and they may be, you know, lead lead article that um or a lead story that tucker talks about that for example we don't even really touch on on the show and and it's interesting why does tucker make that his central theme why does hannity why did limbaugh why do these guys who do this for a living i would be one included why do we feel these stories deserve uh, more serious consideration than some of the other stories i don't know i don't have any idea other than kind of a personal reaction this story means a lot to me i mean didn't tucker do a full monologue on hunter biden's laptop the other night and he we did. didn't even touch on it he did now, and, and some of that makes me believe that i mean I, tucker doesn't get told what to do by fox i mean he's a he's a money maker he's a cash cow he has high ratings and a huge audience but but fox probably has somebody in his ear hey tucker this is a big deal i mean we've done polling now, that that would be the extreme because they have such a i mean i would imagine you would know better than i rev um how many people work for the tucker carlson show 30 or 40 probably i mean wouldn't you imagine researchers and uh you know folks who go out and pursue uh the truth uh yeah i mean i would imagine he's got a couple of lawyers on staff maybe not dedicated 100 percent of the time to the tucker carlson show but working at fox and understanding their priorities or whatever it is tucker's talking about make sure we've got i mean that's an obligation responsibility we don't have but but i've got to do a better job and and i've thought a lot about i got to do a better job of um, not drilling down as deep on things that I believe. I mean, the Fed, it's hard to have a radio show for four hours about the Federal Reserve. It's not hard at all for me to have, but it's almost like the Federal Reserve deserves a podcast. You know, it deserves three episodes of a podcast where you just drill and you drill and you drill. I text um, a friend of ours, a friend of the show last night and said, the Fed is Superman, Batman, um, Spider-Man, and Wonder Woman put together. I mean, it's a, they have superpowers. I mean, they, they don't have the, just the one superpower or two or three of Superman, nor do they have the simple superpowers of Batman or Spider-Man. I mean, they've got all the superpowers of everything mm-hmm. in the world, and I, and I want to go there. But but I think, my you know, i got to understand that my appetite for the Fed may not match the appetite of the, of the listener, and, uh, and there's kind of a balance there. So uh, maybe we, I don't want to say the David Letterman top ten list, but maybe we have about eight or ten. I mean, I've got a dozen things here to speak about. Um and then Tucker does a show for for an hour. Now, they, that, that's a, a difference in his show and our show. Uh, we do a week's worth of television every morning. Mm-hmm. I mean, Tucker does five hours a week. We do four hours a morning. So our content and, and our digging into the issue has to be a little more extensive, I would imagine, than some of the television shows. Um, does somebody already on the phone? Okay, yeah. let's go there. Somebody's an early riser. Must be a good Republican. <laughs> it's Roger. Hey, Roger. Good morning, fellas. Uh, well, I didn't call to talk about the Fed. I'll, I'll admit that. You know, uh, <laughs> well, you got plenty of money. You don't worry about it. 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's what the deal is. But, uh, you know, uh, really, um, I was thinking about yesterday morning. I take a morning walk. I got about a two-mile, two-and-a-half-mile path that I walk every morning or try to. And you know my affinity not only for old-time classic country music, but I like oldies music, too, mainly 60s and 70s. And it just kind of occurred to me after reading the headlines yesterday morning and just going out on my walk after listening to a little bit of you, one thing, uh, a song came to my mind that's got to be revised, Ken, and that's Helen Redding's I Am Woman. She's got to revise that song because nobody knows what a woman is. (laughs) It wouldn't fly today, would it? I Am Woman, hear me roar. Exactly. I mean, nobody knows what a woman is anymore, so maybe she should, I don't know, I am birthing person wouldn't quite fit. <laughs> you know, I, that, that, that wouldn't fit. But, you know, I guess that's what you got to do. I mean, like you say so many times, how did we get here? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I mean, in such a short period of time. I mean, even 10 years ago, we weren't here. I mean, it was bad 10 years ago, but we weren't here. How did we get here? <laughs> okay, there, there's a good – thank you, Roger. Appreciate that. And I've thought of this a lot. I mean, how did we get here? Um, and, and where are we? You know, Roger believes we're here. I think we're here. Some of you believe we're here. Where exactly is here? Um, when we begin – and then we'll, we'll do this this morning, I'm sure. Josh Hawley had a back and forth yesterday with a UCAL Berkeley professor um, – to me, the the double nose rings always a giveaway. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm being I'm being a little bit um countryish here mm-hmm. for a second, but the double nose ring college professor is always a dead giveaway. And if he asks a question and says something in a hearing like that, then he's killing people. Yeah, he's and, causing death. But but I think well, I think the the and I think I know, I mean I've known Roger all my life. The suggestion Roger's making is why are we even having this debate? Right. I mean, why is a lady? Uh, pontificating upon those notions and ideas even allowed to appear before uh, a Senate committee. Uh, really? I mean, th- this is where we are. And I think, I, I don't want to put words in Roger's mouth, but I mean, I think that's, I mean, I know him well enough to, uh, it's not what the answer and question were. Why are we even having this debate? And, and I thought, the, I saw the the soundbiter, the part of Hawley and the, and the witness or whatever yesterday, and I thought the same thing. I said, how in the heck, heck did we get here? It's bizarre. Well, I mean, okay, the, here, here's what I do every Did you morning. figure it out? No, I mean, it's interesting you ask that. So Wednesday, July 13th, remind myself of the day. Wake up, Carolina. Remind myself of the show. 843-661-0937. Those are things I write on a sheet of paper every single morning. I mean, I wish I'd archived these. I mean, I've got rundown sheets. I mean, obviously, I've got stories I printed off, and I've taken a page of the Wall Street Journal and a page of Politico and a page of The Hill and a page of Real Clear Politics and a page of Salon and a page of Breitbart. I mean, I've got all of this highlighted, and you've, you've seen me do it. I mean, I've got a laid out here about eight or eight or ten ways. But I take a, a sheet of paper every morning, and I make notes to myself, things that I want to make sure I don't forget to speak on behalf of. Um, number one, once again, Wednesday, July 13, wake up, Carolina, 843-661-0937. That's redundant. I mean, the day changes, obviously, but that's something I do uh, in case my brain just goes to sleep on me for a second. I don't remember what the name of the show is, what the day is, and what the phone number is. Um, and if you've ever done this, um, I can forget Mike or Dave's name. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have these brain fades, um, and we're all guilty of that. But but below that, I've got number one. You ready? Here's here's what I wrote down. Okay. 
Um, trans men with ovaries and a uterus cannot, excuse me, can get pregnant, but they're biologically still female. I mean, so so that's where we are. I mean, I, I'm I consider myself a fairly normal, average, um, skeptic, uh, consumer, whatever you. I mean, I, I fit in a lot of boxes like most of you do. But the first thing I wrote down on my rundown sheet this morning: <laughs> trans men with ovaries and a uterus can get pregnant. Biologically, they're female. I mean, that's kind of the way I look at it. And and we'll play the debate if you've not heard. There's a UCAL Berkeley professor. Imagine that. Um, highly educated. Uh, apparently, people care what she has to say because she's appearing uh, before a Senate committee. And uh, Josh Hawley uh, c- kind of went down the road of asking some direct questions, and he got accused of being transphobic. And um, she made her mind up that a white senator's not going to bully me. I mean, you know, I mean, she just went in there with that attitude. Uh-uh. No, no, you will not bully. I am as educated as you are. I'm as important as you are. And it really became kind of a, can we say, it became somewhat of a contest. Uh, it yeah. became a peeing contest, yeah. uh, one with the other. You know, um, Holly got a little bit aggressive. She got real aggressive. And uh, but but I don't think Rogers arguing why are why did Holly get aggressive? Um, what is the official definition of transphobia? You know, or what's the official definition of transgenderism? I think what Rogers argument, what many of us scratch our heads about, is how are we? Get, how did we get here? Why is the first thing that a a fairly normal dude like me? wrote on a sheet of paper, um, trans men with ovaries and a uterus can get pregnant. Biologically, they're still female. That's where I land. Um, and we'll go back and uh, after, let's do this after the first break. That, that's kind of an interesting story, and I knew we'd, we'd get there. It really goes back to something Jim asked about yesterday. Uh, you know, I think the one thing we probably do okay at, I mean, there's nothing we're good at. We're okay at a few things. I think it's connecting some of these dots. So Jim asked yesterday, and Jim's always asking provocative things. Um, he asked questions that he's already thought about, and uh, and he's already kind of hashed out where he lands, and I think he wants to see if we land or I land in, in a similar place. But yesterday, Jim was talking about, is it the end of moderation? Is it the end of, of, of you know, compromise? And, and yes, I mean, absolutely it is. And I think that is an evident example of why there is no interest in or should be no interest in Republicans, and I'm talking about America First Republicans, still got the Mitt Romneys of the world. Mitt Romney's far more dangerous than Peter Thiel. I mean, Peter Thiel called, or Peter Thiel was called by the New York Times the most dangerous smart man in America. Carl doesn't care much for Thiel, but I do. Um, but, but no, Thiel's far less dangerous than Mitt Romney. I want to read you something Romney said in, um, in Salon, no, the Atlantic. I mean, Romney, one of the few Republicans who gets invited to sit down with the Atlantic editorial board, <laughs> and he takes them up on it because, you, something. you know, I mean, so anyway, he wrote an essay. They published it on Independence Day in the Atlantic. Now, now, it's kind of interesting to me, Independence Day in the Atlantic, uh, and they want to hear what Mitt Romney has to say. Here's what Romney, I mean, he said a lot of things, but, but he basically um, in, insinuated that political polarization is teared apart the country. Uh, I don't know. Uh, political polarization may be the only saving grace we have as a nation, but he said, and I quote, President Joe Biden is a genuinely good man, but he's yet to be, uh, he's, he has yet been unable to break through our national uh, malady of denial, deceit, and distrust. Um, he's making his case for compromise. Guys, that's done. I mean, that's over. Stop believing as a Republican that the, the, the other party has any interest in compromising. They don't. Um, it would be like asking um, the, the Clemson University Board of Trustees um, to change the color from garnet and black for Carolina or, or South Carolina. Do it inverse. Uh, if, if yes, the USC Board of Trustees... Um, 
to change. And Clemson said, we'll, we'll compromise. And, and you go from orange to red or orange to blue. Or, they're, they're, we're, we're so disconnected one from another. We believe fundamentally in such different things. Um, 53% of Democrats in America today want to abolish the Supreme Court, not the Fed. They want to do away with the Supreme Court and replace it with a, what, what are their words, a democratically elected court. Um, 64%, which is roughly two in three, 64% of Democrats want to change the number of Supreme Court justices from nine to 13. I mean, there, is no, there is no moderating anymore. We're, we're, we're done with that. There's going to be a winner and a loser. You're either going to win or you're going to lose. And in 15 years, we'll look back at this confrontational era of American politics and you'll say, wow, we missed an opportunity um, to win. Nobody will reflect and say, man, we really missed an opportunity to um, reconcile, to, to moderate, to compromise on any of these issues. That's done. That's over. I mean, it really goes back to some things I've said um, years ago about, you know, the great divide, the fundamental divide, the fault line in America. You're on this side. I'm on that side. Um, th- there is just no opportunity at all. And I think Kaufman kind of agreed with me yesterday, reluctantly. He didn't like saying some of the things he said, but but the 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 premise and notion, that's why Romney's so dangerous. I mean, Romney still believes that he's dealing with with, with fair brokers. I mean, he believes people on the other side had a have a genuine interest, a genuine interest in doing right by the country. No, they want to they want to obligate you to an agenda. They want to force you to do what it is they say needs to be done. And at some point in time, we got to push back. And I think the one thing Trump has done, I put something on Facebook yesterday. You know, Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney, uh, the Bushes, they've never liked you. They've never given a damn about you. The, the Bushes needed you to vote for them, but they were globalist, interventionist, internationalist, um, uh, elitist, establishment Republicans. Uh, they've never liked the, the guy that's been to a club with a dirt parking lot. They've never liked uh, no matter if you have a white-collar income, if you have a blue-collar mindset. Those people have never liked you, but they needed you. They couldn't win unless you did what they convinced you to do. And you did it. And that's on us. We were gullible. We were naive. We believed that they wanted to foster uh, personal freedoms and liberties, and, and they were in this for the right reason. They were never in this for the right reason. They were in this to advance a globalist, interventionist, um, elitist agenda. And Romney and McCain and Dole and the Bushes. And all of a sudden, we woke up and said, this ain't what I signed up for. I mean, this game's fundamentally different. So Donald Trump's legacy will be the U.S. Supreme Court. And it will haunt Democrats for a generation. Goody. I mean, I hope he haunts them more than you could ever imagine a president haunting as a result of the three three nominations and confirmations he got on the court. But the second most important thing Trump did was was bring Romney and Cheney and I mean those folks have never liked you. They've never given a rat's rear end about you or what you believe or what you expect them to do. You were a pawn in their game, and all of a sudden there's a political agenda enacted within the the Republican Party. And, and I follow Facebook with some of these establishment Republicans, and I know them to be establishment Republicans from my days in politics in South Carolina. And they are just taken aback by the testimony given at January 6th. They're not really taken aback. They've had um, the authority to run this party as they saw fit. And it's not just one person. It's not two or three or four people. It's several thousand. But they've directed the course of this political party. And we've hijacked it. 
I mean, we've taken that control away, and there's not a battle for the heart and soul of the Republican Party. Uh, the establishment wants you to believe there's a battle for the heart and soul. We, the people, have made their mind up or made our minds up. We're not going to be a lot, not going to be misled any longer by Mitt Romney, uh, by the late John McCain, by Bob Dole, by either of the Bushes. We want something different. And Trump gave us a little bit of what we wanted different. And I think the one thing Trump got that nobody else in the establishment gets, this is not going to be an era of compromise. This is going to be an, an age in politics, and American politics will look back and reflect at some point in time when somebody won and somebody lost. And we damn well better make our minds up. We're not going to be on the losing end. This is not a time to let Romney lecture to the masses about deceit and denial. I mean, that's insipid. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's a lot of different things, but um, I mean, I'll say this, and, and I mean this as a guy who rode a bus with Romney for a week and found him to be a fairly pleasant, genuine guy. Uh, I don't want him anywhere near the, the epicenter of power in the Republican Party. I want that guy on the back row um, never to be – he doesn't speak until he's spoken to. I mean, that's the way they've treated the, the, the Rand Pauls and Ron Pauls and some of these you know fringy Republicans who said things like abolish the Fed and said things like, why are we going to Iraq? Why are we going uh, to, in these, some of these presidential wars? And, and Romney said, well, I mean, that's just what we do. I mean, that's what we do. McCain said, that's what we do. And the Bushes said, that's what we do. These global policies will be good for you peasants. Just be quiet and shut up. Sit down. You know, we know what we're doing. Those folks have to be dealt with, guys. And we're in the purging phase of taking care of some of these things. Now, I'm not going to be dement and say I'd rather have 48 true conservatives and lose every vote in Washington. No, I'm not idiotic. I mean, I want to win votes. I want to I advance an agenda. But Mitt Romney's not your friend. I mean, he's simply not your friend. Is he your foe? I don't know. But he's certainly, certainly not your friend. And as dangerous as the New York Times thinks Peter Thiel is, I think Mitt Romney is at least that dangerous, probably even more. Take a break. Back in a minute. This is for being here. Uh, before, uh, I, I want to visit with you, Ms. Metzke, but before I do, I just want to clear one thing up. Professor Bridges, you said several times, you've used a phrase, I want to make sure I understand what you mean by it. You've referred to people with a capacity for pregnancy. Would that be women? Many women, cis women, have the capacity for pregnancy. Many cis women do not have the capacity for pregnancy. Um, there are also trans men who are capable of pregnancy, as well as non-binary people who are capable of pregnancy. So this isn't really a women's rights issue. It's a, it's, we can it's recognize a that this impacts women while also recognizing that it impacts other groups. Those things are not mutually exclusive, Senator Hawley. Oh, so your view is, is that the core of this, this right then is about what? So um, I want to recognize that your line of questioning um, is transphobic, <laughs> um, and it opens up trans people to violence by not recognizing that. Wow, you're saying that I'm opening up people to violence by asking whether or not women are the folks who can have pregnancies? So I'm one, I want to note that one out of five transgender uh, persons have attempted suicide. So I think it's important because of my line of questioning. Because so we can't talk about it. Because denying that trans people exist and pretending not to know that they exist. I'm is denying that trans people exist by asking Are you? you if you're talking you? about women Are you? having pregnancies. Do you believe that there, uh, men can get pregnant? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so you are denying that trans people like this thing. And that leads to violence. Is this how you run your classroom? Are students allowed to question you? Absolutely. Or are they also treated like this? Where no, no, no. They're, they're told that to they're at opening up people to oh, violence. We have a good time in my class. You should join. Oh, I bet. You might learn a lot. 
Wow, I, I would learn a lot. I've learned a lot I just know. in this exchange. Absolutely. Extraordinary. Yep. Um, Ms. Matsky, let me ask you something. <laughs> so you provide health care to women free of charge, right? Is that is that right? You've Absolutely. Done this, you've done this for many years. Yep. You have licensed medical professionals at your pregnancy care centers. Is, is that right? That is correct. And what are some of the, the resources that you provide for women who, who come to you in a time of need? So, just give us a, you, you talked about it in your written testimony, but just give us a, a sense yeah. of it. So we have three OBGYN doctors, five registered nurses, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, phlebotomists, medical assistants, and we provide prenatal care, OBGYN care. We provide pregnancy tests, ultrasounds, well woman visits, breast exams. Uh, we provide a wide range of medical services. Yes. So what do you think about the DC politicians now saying that your clinic and the other 3,000 pregnancy care centers around this country are, are, are fake medical clinics. For instance, Senator Warren has said, it's now more important than ever to crack down on so-called crisis pregnancy centers that mislead and deceive patients. Senator Menendez, crisis pregnancy centers jeopardize women's health and well-being, all while elevating unproven theories about birth control. Uh, Senator Warner wrote to Google asking them to censor search results for care centers like yours saying directing women to fake clinics that traffic in misinformation is dangerous to women's health and undermines the integrity of Google's search results. Uh, are, are, do you run a fake clinic? I mean, is, is that what's happening here? You don't provide actual medical care to actual women? We absolutely do not. Um, run a fake clinic and we have a full medical staff. Like I said, many of our medical professionals have experienced abortion for themselves, inclu including our OBGYN doctor who used to perform abortions. So our entire medical staff is there for women, whether they choose abortion and walk out the door or whether they choose life for their baby and we support them for years after that. Do you think there ought to be an ideological test to be able to get medical care in this country? I mean, is that, should we, should we say to women, well, you have to agree with the DC Democrats ideology, otherwise you can't go get medical care, or maybe for you and, and the physicians who work at your pregnancy care center or the thousands of others across the country, should we impose an ideological test on them and say that, well, you have to agree with the DC Democrats position on abortion or you can't provide medical care to women. Is that, should we do that in this country? Absolutely not. I, I just wanna ask in my, in my few remaining seconds here, Ms. Ms. Harley, um, the Dobbs decision, as I understand it, I, I've read it now a number of times, it gives to voters the decision as to what law should be pertaining to life and pertaining to abortion in all 50 states and, and other jurisdictions around the country. I, I'm just curious, do you know what percentage of voters in this country support the D.C. Democrats' position that they want to impose on the entire country, a one-size-fits-all rule they want to impose from the top down? Do you know what percentage of voters support their position, which is also, by the way, the, the same position taken by North Korea and China, other notable violators of human rights? Do you, do you know what percentage it is? I know that nearly 90% of Americans oppose abortion in the third trimester. Um, the number that would support abortion up to the moment of birth uh, has to be minuscule. It's, it's a horrific policy. Yeah, I mean, based on the most recent Harvard poll that was just released just a few days ago, it, it's less than 10% of voters say that they would support abortion into 
the final month of pregnancy, and yet that is the law that the D.C. politicians want to impose on every voter in America to take this away from the people, take it away from my state, take it away from all the other states and the voters in the states, but impose this law uniformly that is not supported by 90% of the American people. Talk about anti-democratic. At the same time, they want to shut down 3,000 pregnancy care centers all around this country. That's radical. Thank you for being here. See, the, the point there, guys, you got to really stick with this. The, the point is as radical as this professor. She's a, a law. She's at UCAL Berkeley. She is at the School of Law. She is a law professor. And I guess she's, as a side job, runs a pregnancy center. Um, wow. Okay. Uh, she appears before the Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday. Josh Hawley, who is an America First Republican, um, gets pretty aggressive at the beginning. But I think toward the end, they had civil discourse. Um, but, but the reason she's at the hearing is to explore these legal concerns um, about the formal overturning of Roe v. Wade. We've had a formal overturning. It's a new, it's a post-Roe America today. And states are going to grapple with what it is they decide to do in relation to pregnancy centers and abortion centers and and funding of abortions and Planned Parenthood and all these other um, ancillary issues associated with this great debate that America has uh, struggled with since uh, Roe v. Wade and what, 73 became law of the land, uh, 50 years or so. Um, but but so, so I, as someone who believes there are two genders, it's just compromise here. That can be the theme of the show today. Um, so, so you've got <laughs> okay. a man, you got a man and a woman. So, so I guess, you know, if I'm compromising, if I'm, if I'm Mitt Romney, um, I forget the terminology man and woman, and we meet at um, people with the capacity to get pregnant. In other words, I don't, you know, I don't say, hey, is that person going with us a woman? Uh, you know, we're going to the ball game. How many men and women are going? Um, I, I just need to know. You know, women don't drink as much beer as men. They don't eat as food as men. I'm sorry. They just don't. Well, some do. Um, there was this girl in the, uh, Anyway. Um, <laughs> but, but, I mean, we're going to meet at, you know, and said, I don't know how many women are going, but we've got these three people with the capacity to get pregnant. They're going with us. Um, and once again, a trans man with ovaries and a uterus can get pregnant, but biologically still a woman. And, and, and the absurdity of this, and I, you know, I go back to Roger's point, I don't think Roger's arguing uh, the, the intricacies of the debate. I think Roger's point is, why is the Senate Judiciary Committee dedicating a hearing to exploring? But I guess I understand dedicating a hearing to explore the legal concerns and ramifications of what happens in these states. Um, and as radical as this professor is, Elizabeth Warren is more radical. I'll try to get Rev to find out this. Um, I mean, there's a piece out there of her uh, meeting with the media, and she says, shut these places down. These places that try to convince a woman who's considering getting an abortion, and they basically coach her or talk her out of getting that abortion, these places must be shut down because we believe the more babies killed, the better. In in essence, that's what Elizabeth Warren is kind of sort of arguing. So, yes, this professor at UCAL Berkeley is liberal and and radical, but she's not as liberal, liberal and radical as a senator, the people of Massachusetts choose to go transact, you know, the, the nation's business on their state's behalf. Let's go to the phone. Here is Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, guys, I, I think the reason they do that is to let the, the nation know just how nuts these people are. The professor, in her wonderful wisdom, actually contradicted herself. If you listen and they're talking about trans this and trans that. And then she asked 
the question, do you believe men can get pregnant? And that's when Holly said, no. And she said, well, you're transphobic. Well, that's, that wasn't the question. They had been talking about trans men and trans women. And then she says, well, do you think men can get pregnant? And he said, no, bud, you know. And just by asking the question, you're causing people to want to commit suicide. That was the implication she made. So uh, they want it both ways. And and you you can't argue with them because there's no logic to the argument. All they want to do is indoctrinate. It's just like a commercial I keep seeing on Fox, and I don't know why they keep running this. It's got a young man on a stoop saying, I've, I've done some stupid things, and I've even committed some crimes, but I'm not a criminal. Well, what the hell is the definition of a criminal if it's not somebody that's committed crimes? And and the funny thing last night is, you know, I'm thinking, uh, trying to think ahead, and I texted Jesse Waters because he has his text number on the screen, and I said, what do you know about the president's uh, executive order about a week after he took office about directing all of his agencies to expand voting rights in all the states, which is illegal as hell, because it's a state's issue. And I'm a damn if Tucker didn't come up with a, a thing on that in the next hour. So at least as a group, we're on the same page. Y'all have a good day. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate that. You know, and some of the back and forth, and I listened to um, some Democrat senators. They never said woman. They never said man. It, it was it was gender neutral language. I mean, there's this. It's just so weird to me that we've gotten to a place. And once again, I go to Roger's point. It's not the intricacies of the debate. I mean, it's not the either or. It's it's not you know, um, did he get her or did she get him? You know, did they miss uh, this transphobic? It's, it's the fact that we're actually um, committing a certain amount of time at a Senate Judiciary Committee. And I understand once again, I understand dedicating uh, some political energy and political capital to exploring the legal concerns as we have formally overturned Roe v. Wade. I mean, that's what government does. I mean, I think there's some legal concern. I think we should blow, uh, these legal concerns should be addressed in some way, shape, or form. But to not be allowed to say woman and man, but rather this gender-neutral language, I mean, the, the absurdity of that, uh, but it's where we are. And when Joe says she revealed how crazy she is, I'm paraphrasing a bit here with Joe, but... um. Joe, there are a lot of crazies with her. I mean, this lady's not on an island. I mean, her, her mindset, her, her train of thought, the way she sees the world, she's not as isolated as you and I would like to believe. Um, there are millions and millions and millions of people willing today to stop using the language uh, of former days or in times gone by. In other words, um, man and woman replaced with this gender-neutral language. She's not the only person in America that believes that should happen. I mean, this is a, there's been a series of, of, I don't know, episodes or events in American history that have led us to a far more liberal mindset. And I mean, it's got to be confronted. I mean, it can't be done the way Romney wants to do it. I mean, how do you, I'll ask you a question. We'll take a break. Um, How do you rationally compromise with that lady? How do you rationally compromise with Elizabeth Warren, who has a more radical position than the professor from, um, UCAL Berkeley, and here's a better question. 
why in the world would the people of Massachusetts vote for a lady who has a more radical view of abortion than a UCAL Berkeley professor that says there's no such thing as man and woman, that there are these, um, that there are these, these people who can have babies and, and people who can become pregnant uh, or a person who can become pregnant. How do you rational? How do you help me? I mean, I, you know, if we're, if we're, if we're in the spirit of compromise and America's greatness has always been centered upon and hinged to, you know, it's, it's ability to compromise the constitution with the great compromising. I mean, I've heard that since I was a kid. How do you compromise with these people today? You don't. Back in a minute. I want to get to the big news here in just a bit. we got a call, and we'll get there in two seconds. But the big news is Springsteen announces a U.S. and world tour yesterday. I heard that. And the Royal Rev of Radio is on it. I mean, those are his words, not mine. <laughs> I want five seats, really good seats, in Madison Square Garden in April of 2023. Ooh. And your response to me was? I said, I'm on it. Okay, I'm he's on try. it. He comes in this morning and says, I don't know, man. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't find where he's got a promoter. He doesn't have a... Um, I've been working on it. Yeah, he's... um. Well, I mean, he kind of walks to the beat of his own drum. We've agreed to that. Yep. Let's go to the phone. Larry in the PD. Hi, Larry. Hey, guys. Good morning. Uh, you know, it's funny kind of where you were coming out there, Ken, with, the, you know, where are we left to, to compromise? And I think we've compromised everywhere we can. And, and you've got one side that wants to take their half right out of the middle. Um, but the one thing that, that I, when I heard that exchange yesterday for the first time, I thought to myself, here we are at one of the highest and loftiest places in one of the most powerful countries in the world. And what we're discussing is whether or not a baby has any value. That's what they're discussing. And I'm thinking, this is lunacy. It's, it's, I don't know what is worse, that there's a woman that wants to stand there and argue that a baby doesn't have any value, or that there's a group of people that would bring her to the highest place in the land to discuss it. I, want, I was like, somebody should be, like, slinging the F word and saying this is nuts and who, who is this crazy person? Get her out of here. We've got more important things to do. And everybody's just sitting there with all this decorum, like, yes, yes, this is very important. And, and I just thought, you know, back in the days uh, of, of the old Catholic Church, they said that they spent, like, a decade trying to debate how many angels could dance on the head of a pen. And I'm thinking, we're right back there again. We're... We're getting ready to head for the dark ages. This this superstition and pseudoscience and made up language and I mean we just we know so much. We're stupid. I, I just don't even understand why I'm I'm done. I'm done arguing about this stuff, man. After I heard that last night, I was like, you know, I'm never arguing about this stuff again. These people just need to go away. They've got to we've got to suppress this and society needs to step up and say, Hey, we're not gonna be like this. I mean it's just we just need to say no. Well said. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. And, and I've tried to, you know, I've thought a lot about my, what is my responsibility because I get challenged at times by some of the, um, some of the folks Larry just talked about of being divisive. And, and I, you know, I wear that with a badge of honor. I mean, th- there was a day when I did this and I think we talked about this before that I didn't want to be divisive. I didn't want to be a dividing actor in trying to reconcile a nation and get it to a better place. I'm convinced now, as Larry just said, we've got to win. I mean, we've got to win. There is no, there is no common ground any longer, guys. I mean, you heard yesterday, and, and what's even scarier than that, and Rev's found this on this bit, it's only about 30 seconds. we got time. Play it now. Yeah. Here's Elizabeth Warren. I mean, as liberal and dismissive of human life as a UCAL Berkeley law professor was, the senator from Massachusetts is even more dismissive of the value of a baby and human life. In Massachusetts right now, 
those crisis pregnancy centers that are there to fool people who are looking for pregnancy termination help outnumber true abortion clinics by three to one. We need to shut them down here in Massachusetts and we need to shut them down all around the country. You should not be able to torture a pregnant person like that. That's Guys, that's bizarre. I mean, that's scary. That's, you know, a, um, a professor at UCAL Berkeley has a, a, a certain persona that they're obligated to. I mean, they can't go there and say conservative things. They'll lose their job. They'll certainly lose their tenure. I mean, we know the way academia leans, and, and we know that. I mean, and maybe that's the advantage we do have now. I mean, Larry just basically said we're, we're beginning to – I mean, we're not suspicious any longer, right? I mean, we know the game is rigged. We know the odds are stacked. We know that we are in the minority when it comes to disseminating information. I'm talking about the media and academics and, you know, those in charge. I mean, we've had debates on this show before about who gets to write history. I mean, is it the welder? Is it the construction worker? Is it the truck driver? No, academics and, and, and the media write history. So, so we know how stacked the odds are. Do you really believe in a moderating debate we're going to get a fair shake? No. We, we've got to dig in and win. And we've got to call Elizabeth Warren evil because that's what she is. She is a senator from Massachusetts. She deserves to go to Washington on that state's behalf because that's what they choose to do. But but America who has that this consciousness about us have to call her exactly what she is. She is an evil, vile, disgusting woman. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone held on during the break. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Hey, Mike. Hey. hey uh, uh, great show as always. But uh, I don't want to get into how many angels can dance on the head of a pen quite yet. But um, I I wish we could accept some facts because they debate whether it's um, whether uh, an individual is a man or a woman. Well, from the moment of conception, uh, we our sex is determined and imprinted in by X and Y chromosomes in every cell in our body. And that is something that can't be denied. Now, there are XXX uh, women that have an extra X chromosome, and there's YYX men that have an extra uh, male uh, uh, chromosome. But uh, it's in the cell of everyone's body. And, of course, you can take hormones and have uh, cosmetic surgery to have uh, uh, your uh, appearance and uh, disposition changed, but it doesn't change the fact that from the uh, from your conception, you're either male or female. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Totally agree. Mm-hmm. I and mean, I think that's a, kind of a biological definition of male and female, but it's not just this issue, guys. I mean, it's a, um, and I guess the theme of today's show and these shows kind of build themselves. I mean, by Wednesday, uh, remember what we talked about Monday. Monday, we roll out of the bed and we do the best we can, especially the first hour or so. I mean, I'm busy watching the race and trying to get Springsteen tickets and Rev's doing whatever it is he does, hanging out with the Jet Setters at Truist Park with the Braves. Um, and congratulations <laughs> right. to the Braves last night. Big win they did. against the Mets. It looked a little touchy for a while. It was. Uh, shut out for six <laughs> innings, and then they uh, Olsen hits a two-run homer. And somebody else hit a two. Duvall, I think, hit a two-run homer. Uh, I didn't see that one, but I read about it. 
this morning as I read about some of these other goings on. But by you know by Wednesday, these shows begin kind of feeding upon themselves. It's forward momentum. That's kind of the um, the language of radio, talk radio in particular. That these shows gain a little momentum and they get more uh, engaging, and you know more people have something to say about it by by Wednesday. But it's not just this single issue that we're concerned about. I mean, it's the, it's the tenor and tone of American politics today. And I, and I just, you know, I don't know how to verbalize what's in my head. I mean, at times I've got so much running around in this feeble brain, but, um, but, but the reality is we're, we're at a very confrontational age in American politics. And, and I very often debate with some of these Politico friends of mine, why is it so damn testy right now, man? I mean, why is everybody so uptight about everything? And I think one side has been so advantaged by academia and the media. I mean, if you believe, uh, let's use this as, as an example. Let's use the debate we just talked about with the UCAL, UCAL Berkeley professor. Um, how many UCAL Berkeley professors go to Washington, you know, saying that life begins at conception? How many go saying that a marriage is between a man and a woman? How many go and say, you know, I mean, well, you see where I'm headed. I mean, th- there's such an overwhelming advantage that those on the left have when it comes to uh, the world of media and disseminating information and academia and teaching and, and, you know, intellectually training young people. And they don't run into any resistance. And along comes, and as long as Romney's in charge of the Republican Party, they're not going to run into any uh, resistance because Romney said, and I'll quote July 4th essay, in Atlantic Magazine, President Joe Biden is a genuinely good man. No, he's not. He's a crook. I mean, he's a political prostitute. I mean, he's done things that the, the, the Clintons might be a little bit embarrassed about. Um, at least the Clintons were saying smart. something. Well, I mean, at least Bill Clinton was smart. I mean, nobody would call Clinton a moron, would you? No. I mean, I think Clinton, Clinton was a very adept man. I mean, he was very skilled at what he did. I mean, not only is Biden a dunce, a blowhard, uh, he's also a crook. So when, 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 you know, and I understand what Romney's trying to do. He's solidifying his, his contrast. In other words, you got Trump over here. We think Trump calls it like he sees it. Romney thinks he's an insult to American politics. He's a black stain on American democracy. I don't believe that. I don't think the majority of Republican base voters believe that. But, but the problem is the Democrats historically have dealt with Republicans like Mitt Romney. They don't put up much resistance. You want to compromise? Okay. Um, give me give me an inch and I'll give you a mile. And Republican voters got sick and tired of that. And and because the, the Democrats won over, give me an example of a non-Trump Republican scoring a win in recent American politics. I mean, I'm listening. I'm waiting. I mean, give me an example of, of an America, of a non-America first politician. I'm thinking about Trump. Uh, three Supreme Court justices. Um, some tax cuts. I wasn't crazy about the the top heaviness of the tax cuts. I think they were too heavily weighted toward uh, the corporate. But but think, give me a, give me a success, and and we could give Mitch McConnell some success. Uh, yeah, that that's fair. Uh, Merrick Garland's not a U.S. Supreme Court justice. So there you go. I mean, there there's a um there's a success story for Mitt, uh, Mitch McConnell mm-hmm. um doing whatever it took to make sure Mitch McConnell didn't get on the court and we've got to i I didn't answer jim's question yesterday when jim said so should we call for hearings yes hearings about what everything everything that we think may may be um, against the grain unconstitutional 
It doesn't matter how embarrassed you may be. Okay, we're going to really have a hearing every day. Yes, yes. We're going to investigate Hunter Biden's laptop. We're going to investigate Joe Biden's business dealings. We're going to investigate uh, Merrick Garland for not enforcing the law of the land in that you're not allowed to protest nor intimidate a Supreme Court justice. And if you don't, you're going to be under further investigation. It's a travesty. We need to investigate the sale of our petroleum reserves to China. Yeah, but all of this needs to be investigated. But, but here's the problem, guys, and here's why we feel like we may be walking on thin ice. And by thin ice, I'm not saying winning or losing. I'm talking about, man, are we really going to complain about everything? Yes. I mean, our team is much smaller than their team. By, by that, I mean the number of people who can enforce, um, and I'm talking about enforcing information here, but can, can disseminate information to the masses in a way that is fair and let the public choose what they believe or not. Um, I'll give an example here. And, and this is kind of ventriloquist journalism. That's what we refer to it when I was in politics. Um, I'll read an article. If he mounts another campaign in 2024, Mr. Biden would be asking the country to elect a leader who would be 86 at the end of his tenure, testing the outer boundaries of age in the presidency. Polls show many Americans consider Mr. Biden too old, and some Democratic strategists do not think he should run again. Mr. Biden's public appearances have fueled that perception. His speeches can be flat and listless. He sometimes loses his train of thought, has trouble summoning names, or appears momentarily confused. More than once, he has promoted Vice President Kamala Harris, calling her President Harris. Mr. Biden, who overcame a childhood stutter, stumbles over words like kleptocracy. He has said Iranian when he meant Ukrainian, and several times called Senator Mark Warner, Democrat of Virginia, John, confusing him with a late Republican senator of that name from Virginia. Everything I just read is true. Guess where, guess what publication that was in? The New York Times. Mm. That is ventriloquist journalism. When, when the news outlet most influential amongst Democrats in America today, um, that's given the green light to prominent Democrats to begin putting together alternate campaigns. Um, so, so they control all of the information other than Fox talk radio, um, some websites out there, some blogs, you know, and then this decentralizing of information has led to the further confrontation. In other words, for a long time, and maybe this is, maybe I'm giving a little more credit to, to Bob Dole and John McCain and, and Mitt Romney than they deserve, but they operated in a world where, you know, only one side of the story got told. So there's no reason to be that um antagonistic or animated about whatever it is happening because CNN said it and NBC said it and CBS said it and ABC said it and the New York Times wrote about it the Washington Post wrote about it and the Wall Street Journal wrote about it so so when all of those are collectively kind of singing off the same sheet of music what what what, what did the average american think i mean it must be true it's true i mean it must be the truth i mean if if the times and the post and NBC and ABC and CNN are saying the same thing it must be true. Well, all of a sudden, the big revelation in politics in America today is we realize now that they're not in the news business. They're in the propaganda business. They're activists for the Democrat Party. And we, as long as we didn't know that, they were okay because we believed, well, the Democrats would never try to change the definition of man to a uh, person who can, you know, who can uh, become pregnant. I mean, that's crazy. That's nonsense. Um, well, all of a sudden, we get that far down the road. And, and I think going back to Roger's point, how did we get here? I think we got here by people on the left not running into any resistance. And, and guess what people will do? Guess what an 18-year-old will do if you don't enforce a curfew? 
I mean, if you say be home by 11 and he's home at 11.15, there's no consequence. Guess what? He just might try. He might try to come home at 11.30. Mm-hmm. And if there's no consequence at 11.30, guess what he might do the next time? He might try 11.45. The next thing you know, he's coming out at 2 o'clock in the morning because nobody's ever resisted. Nobody's ever told him, hey, man, this isn't right. We said 11. You're coming in at 2. I mean, we went from 11 to 2, and nobody was confronted with anything that, you know, challenged uh, the, the way that kid comes home. Same thing with the left. The left has fixed the game. And I don't know if it was intentional or people naturally gravitate. We, we've had a lot of um, uh, conversations over the years about why is academia so liberal? I don't know. I mean, I honestly have no idea. Why is the media so liberal? Don't know. Don't have any idea, but they are. I mean, when you look at the number of college professors who identify as Democrats or liberals, I mean, it's 80-some-odd percent. And in the media, I think it's 90 percent. So, so when, when kids go to college, and more kids are going to college than ever before, and they're hearing things from professors like um, this lady who appeared at the Senate Judiciary Committee yesterday, what do you expect? I mean, the, the, the professor has control over that audience. The professor is a superior in that relationship. Um, they're to be trusted. They're to be believed. You know, my mom and dad are paying all this money for me to go to this college to get this good education so I can have a better future. Surely they wouldn't put me in a class with a woman who's just being fundamentally dishonest. I mean, of course they wouldn't. My mom and dad loved me too much to do that to me. And this, this, this mush of a brain begins getting shaped and morphed into something. And all of a sudden that kid comes out. Everything his mom and dad told him. I mean, his dad probably said, son, there's a man and there's a woman. There's only two genders. Well, he gets off to this fancy schmancy school, and all of a sudden he's with peers, and, and the peers want to, I mean, you know what peer pressure is? And all of a sudden that kid who had a fundamental understanding of the world uh, in, you know, runs upon people who don't enforce that belief. In fact, they contradict that mindset. And that kid's got to sort through all of that. And when 90% of the professors on college campuses see the world in a very leftist sort of way, why is he? Why do we not expect that kid, that 18, 19, 20-year-old, to not be influenced? I mean, if he goes to 10 classes and nine of those 10 are led by someone who doesn't believe we have two genders, who doesn't believe life begins at conception, who doesn't believe marriage is between a man and a woman, who doesn't believe that the government should balance its books, I mean, he leaves a home or she leaves a home that has those fundamental foundational principles, but do we really believe that our kids are not going to be affected in some way, shape, or form by what's out there. So the next thing you know, the kid goes to a classroom and nine out of 10 teachers say something counterintuitive to what he, you know, was, was told to believe. And he begins kind of scratching his head. Trust me, kids don't believe everything their parents say. They may at 12, they don't at 18. I mean, they begin to encounter um, their own emotions and their own feelings and their own subjectivities. I mean, they, they start kind of like, what do I believe? I don't want to believe exactly. I mean, I can relate. I mean, you know, my dad enforced on me a worldview, but at some point in time in my development, I said, I didn't ever say to my dad, you're crazy. But I said, I don't know if my dad's right about that. What if I have, what if I, what if I naturally encountered that um, emotion and nine out of 10 college professors are in my ear saying how crazy my dad was. My dad didn't know what he was talking about. And, And then you turn the television on. And there's CNN, and there's MSNBC, and there's you pick up a newspaper, you go to the New York Times website, you go to the Washington Post website, and everything contradicts your fundamentals 
uh, early in life, the things you were taught and, and trained to believe early in life. And then, I, you know, I, I love these parents who say, well, I prepared my kid for the world. Still a kid. He's still a kid. You, you may have invested as much as you know how to invest in the formation of values in that young person, but they go out in academia and they bump into the media and it's just overwhelmingly in, in contrast to what you tried to convince your kid was true and um and and indisputable. Hey, you just described how we got here. That's how we started That's the exactly show this morning. That's exactly how we got here. We started the show with Roger's call, wondering how in the world did we get here? Five years. You ago, just described it. Five the years ago, you and I were on this same, probably in this same studio. How old is the studio? Uh, about what? Two years. Okay. Um. Well, five years ago, we were in where Freehold is, yeah. and and we began, you know, talking about whatever it is we were talking about, these issues of the day, issues of the moment, and. And, and something came up in, in one of our conversations about, you know, kids encountering the real world. And, you know, we be, kind of began, okay, why are 90% of college professors liberal? I don't have a better answer today than I did five years ago. Why are 90% of the media liberal? I don't have a better answer today than I did um, years and years and years ago. I mean, I think there's some, uh, I think there's some reasons that are hard to explain, Um I think liberals sincerely believe that we're bad. You know, we're um we we're old fashioned, we're fuddy duddy, we um we don't embrace progressivism. You know, I read something over the weekend about well, it's actually last week during my vacation week, progressive conservatism. But there we've okay. kind of coined the phrase. No, I mean stick with me. Trump was a progressive conservative. Trump was a conservative, by and large. He's pro-business. I mean, Trump was a very pro-business-minded president, pro-economic, you know, growth. Um, whether what, what he believed about abortion or gay rights, or I don't know. I mean, Trump never—I'll um, ask you a question. I'll challenge the Trump voter. Um, no president has affected abortion in the name of pro-life ever than President Trump. I mean, there is no doubt about it. I mean, I don't know about—I um, don't know about Gorsuch. But Kavanaugh and when when Amy Coney Barrett in particular, I mean that was the one when when Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away and he had a chance to put Coney Barrett on the Supreme Court. I mean that that was the day that you had to believe at some point in time um, the court is going to deal with Roe v. Wade, and and we have an advantage here. The pro life movement has an advantage here. But I'll ask you a question: Do you think Donald Trump has ever paid for an abortion? Hmm. Hmm. You see where I'm headed? Oh, yeah. I mean, but but we accept those complexities. We accept those. Um, and I don't know that he has. I'm not accusing anybody of anything. Uh, we're, we're in the thought-provoking business here at Wake Up Carolina. And um, so, so there's never been an American president that, that has affected the pro-life movement like Donald Trump. Do you believe that Donald Trump, George H.W. Bush, Ronald, who would you say is more likely as a Republican president to have ever paid for an abortion? But I mean, it doesn't make him any less effective. Doesn't make him any less influential. Really and truly, makes him more human. I mean, you know, living gets messy. We like to say uh, the, those profound things. But but yeah, w- when you look at the world and how it's morphed into, when Roger said, "How did we get here?" The, the left is running in no resistance whatsoever, and the only people responsible for opposing the left is the right, and they've just not been up to the task. That they, they have decided that it's more important to be respected and revered in Washington. I want to be on Meet the Press once every six months. I don't have to be on every week. 
And I know they limit the, the, the number of appearances for conservative Republicans, but as long as they'll let me sit down with Chuck Todd once every six months, I'm good to go with that. So you, we, we couldn't expect the liberal media to hold liberals in check. You couldn't expect liberal, liberal academia to do anything other than propagandize on the liberal causes behalf. But you did expect the Republicans, the conservative Republicans, to stand in opposition, and they just simply never did. And Republican voters that were gullible and naive far longer than they should have been, and along comes Trump, and they believe that despite his personal imperfections, he'll, he'll fight. I mean, if they throw a rock at him, he'll pick up a boulder. I mean, if they hit him with a twig, he'll hit them back with a stick. And that's why there's still an appetite, that there's still a huge appetite for a Trump campaign in 2024. And if you get inside the belly of the beast and you really start picking at the Trump voter, why, 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 why Trump? Why not DeSantis? Why not Hawley? Why not Van? Why Trump? Because I'm not sure those other guys will fight. I'm not sure how hard they're willing to resist where the left is trying to take this great nation. Back in a minute. So despite having all those advantages, they are tremendous advantages. When college campuses around the country are indoctrinating young people, I didn't say every college campus. I mean, there's still some examples. There's still some, 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 ah, some liberal arts schools who don't go overboard and, and are careful. Um, I think about some of the local, I mean, in the South. I mean, the South is not a bastion. I mean, they understand. I think the University of South Carolina is more liberal than it is conservative. I think Francis Marion is probably a little bit more liberal than it is conservative. But they're not some of these prestigious elite universities. But here's the problem. Uh, remember, we talked a lot about who goes to work for the government. I mean, the, the majority of people who graduate from the University of South Carolina or Clemson or Francis Marion, they don't go to work for the government. I mean, they, they go to work around me and you. It's the people at Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Stanford and Duke, the prestigious institutions that produce the right pedigreed individuals that get to be in charge of our government's agencies. Um, Jake Sutherland, you know, the guy that, um, I think his name is Sullivan. Sullivan. Jake Sullivan, um, the guy that Hillary read poetry to uh, at his funeral. I mean, his wedding. His wedding. Uh, yeah, not his funeral. Um <laughs> Same funeral, wedding. They, they can be kind of sort of one of the same. Um, you're bound to, to both, right? You don't have a choice to, to die or not. And when you get married, you don't have a choice to do what you want to anymore or not. You do what you're told. If you're a man, if you're a man and want to stay, and want to stay, yeah, let's get away from yeah. that. So, so despite on, having on. all these advantages, there's only one cat that can blow it, and that's Joe Biden. You got to be bad. <laughs> you got to suck when the New York Times turns on you. The Times is basically saying, dude, we've gotten everything out of your way. I mean, Zuckerberg spent a half billion dollars to make sure you won. We've done everything we can to tell people you don't suck, and you just can't hold up in your, your end of the bargain. So in the name of ventriloquist journalism, uh, the Times basically released a poll. Uh, we, we talked a second ago about what they, uh, this news story, it's a brutal news story. I mean, it really is. I mean, if you didn't know any better, you'd swear Biden was a Republican. I mean, this is kind of the coverage, you know, that Republicans normally get. And here, here's what I've often wondered. And, and here's, I think, the sincerity complex. Do the people that write for the Times and teach at major universities, elite universities in particular, do they know they're doing the left's bidding? You know, I've always struggled with that. Breeze, I can hear Breeze, you damn right they know. You, you better believe they know. They know exactly what they're doing. If me, what Breeze always say, if me and you figured it out, <laughs> you know, it's not you and I with Breeze, it's me and you. Uh, if we figured it out, you know they figured it out. Um, but I do ask my question, or excuse me, I ask myself at times, 
Do they really know the damage they're doing to the country and do they care or do they believe that this is the altruistic thing to do? This is the giving uh, to democracy that this is the contribution I can make and helping make America a better place. I need to stop that guy in South Carolina that gets on the radio every morning and basically tries to pump his crowd up. I mean, something's got to stand in his way. Do, do they do they see me as genuinely dangerous to the country, or do they see me as someone? I mean, they, they obviously see me as someone who has to be dealt with. And I'm talking about Limbaugh would be the, the, the greatest example ever of that, and Tucker probably today. You know, we, we, we talked about who takes Tucker's, excuse me, who takes Limbaugh's place. I think Carlson, as of now, yeah has moved the meter as much in his favor as anybody in that orbit. And they seem to hate him to the same level they hated Limbaugh. And that's the great measurement. I mean, that's the only measurement that matters. If you're someone who does what I do for a living, at that, that level in particular, the hate meter is the greatest success meter you could ever pay attention to. I mean, I would argue that the more the left hates you, the better your ratings probably are. Um, what do we say in the country? A hit dog barks. Mm-hmm. And, and the I more think, effective I think, I think Limbaugh hit the dog and it barked. I think he was the best there ever was at that. Um, I think right now Tucker probably does it as good as anybody. I wish he wouldn't laugh the way he does. I mean, uh, for some reason he's got this, this personality characteristic where he laughs uncontrollably. A little bit juvenile. I mean, Tucker's a really smart guy. Yeah, if, he just, if he just put a period at the end of the sentence and didn't throw in the laugh, I think it'd be a lot more And And, and Rev, effective. here's the most interesting part of Tucker to me. Tucker's a convert. I mean, Tucker cut his teeth at the Weekly Standard. I mean, Tucker, Tucker sat at the knee of Bill Crystal. You know, that's who trained him in what I call conservative ideology and, and the way to articulate yourself in a journalistic um, way. And all of a sudden, Tucker, something's happened to Tucker. I don't know. I mean, you know, a lot of people will say, well, of course you know what happened. One of every three Republicans believe in the traditional con- establishment model, and two-thirds believe in this America first. He's a capitalist. I mean, he sees which way the wind's blowing. I don't think you can go after what the vigor Tucker does without having some degree of sincerity in, in, in what you believe in. I think something's happened. We know the story with Bannon. I mean, you may not, but I mean, I, Bannon's family was was financially devastated. Not him personally, because he worked at Goldman Sachs, and I think he left there in good, I don't say good standing, but he had some money in his pocket to go off and do what he wanted to do. Um, and money in your pocket working at Gold Standard is a lot different than money in the pocket if you're tired from the highway patrol. I mean, we're talking about two totally different things. I would imagine Bannon left Goldman with 20 million bucks, you know, somewhere thereabout. Um, I've read that yeah. a place or two. <laughs> Not bad. Well, I mean, you can do kind of what you want to if you got 20 million bucks. Sure. Um, and he didn't spend it on clothes. Nor um nor hygiene. I mean that's pretty, that's pretty obvious. I mean he's not by maybe he's in the Dollar Shave Club. I mean if he is, he needs to cancel the subscription or get them delivered every other month. They'll do that if you don't shave as much. Um, but anyway, so um, Bannon was scarred. I mean something happened in his life that the that, that he thought was so so unfair. Um, and he changed. I mean he left Goldman. He became. Uh, kind of, an, I don't want to say a, a, a rabble rouser for the America First movement, but that probably is the best way to describe him. And he was highly effective. Um, if you go back and look at the most important people in Trump getting elected in 16, Bannon would be, I mean, Kahaley's told me this. I mean, Bannon would be number one, two, or three. I mean, he, he you know, Corey Lewandowski was there to begin with. And Trump, obviously, it's kind of interesting. John Bolton was on um, Jake Tapper's show yesterday. Oh, and, you hear and, what he said? Yeah, yeah. Um, and Bones, no Trump apologist. I mean, he doesn't care much for Trump, no. but, but I think he nailed Trump. I mean, I think he really nailed Donald Trump does not do things as Corey Lewandowski would have wanted them done. I mean, Trump didn't want to lose. 
So, so Trump probably sent, I mean, inspired people. There's a better word. Trump probably inspired a movement that he knew might get out of control, but it would give him more time to challenge some of these state electors. I mean, I think that's what Trump was out for. Mm-hmm. I don't think Trump incited an insurrection. I think the impeachment's bogus, but I think Trump peddled some fantasy, and I think Trump uh, created or inspired people to do something that they probably normally would not do. I mean, it's been obviously overstated. It's been one-sided. It's been, you know, and no adversarial opinions, no cross-examination. And what do you expect? Um, it would be like the Gamecocks playing the Gamecocks. Who do you think wins that game? Well, the Gamecocks do. So, so in essence, the January 6th hearing is kind of a, a just a, it's a, uh, it's an infomercial is what it is. It's a, it's almost like one of these televangelists, you know, who buys 30 minutes on television. And if you'll only send me a hundred bucks, I can tell you the secret to get to heaven. I mean, that's kind of what it's a little bit fanatical in their hatred of Trump. You know, it's interesting. The January 6th commission says that there's this blind, at the core of this is this blind loyalty to Trump. I would argue that even more than that, because they're they're right to some degree, there is a loyalty. I don't think it's blind. There is a loyalty to Trump that that is unlike any I've ever seen in American politics. But the the blind hatred for Trump is what the motivation is for the January 6th commission. So it's a little bit ironic that the people accusing you and I and others of being blindly loyal to a political actor are really consumed by this hatred they have. Uh, we're loyal. They're far more filled with hate of Trump and us, this movement in general. And uh, and Liz Cheney kind of epitomizes that. And and I just hope and pray with every fiber of my being um, that she gets her comeuppance August 2nd mm-hmm. in Wyoming. And I will be so disappointed in the people of Wyoming if they choose to send her back to Washington on their behalf. But that's their call, right? I mean, that's Very their true. decision to make. And if they make it, then... You know, we'll just kind of deal with it. But did Bolton admit that he's been involved in a coup d'etat? Yeah. And um, <laughs> and he said, Trump's not the guy <laughs> that you think he is. You're, you're trying to paint him as some mastermind who sat in a, you know, in a dark dungeon somewhere and schemed out the events. I can assure you. And he worked for Trump. He said, Trump kind of goes from one moment to the next, which is what we all kind of believed about Trump. He's not a guy that puts on a bulletin board everything I'm going to do tomorrow, everything I'm going to do. Then business guys aren't afforded that luxury. I mean, if metrics and measures don't apply and you're in a bureaucracy, you can probably tell me about what you're going to be doing Friday. If you're in the business world, you've got no idea on Wednesday what's going to come up before Friday. Let's go to the phone. Breeze joins us now. Hey, Breeze. You know what it is, kid? Yeah, if you put yourself in Trump's shoes and then you sit there and he goes, you know, I got royally screwed. And he believes in his heart and soul. And he did get royally screwed. He had the election stolen from him. But then you take all of the people that they say that are blindly loyal to Trump. Well, you know, they feel like they got royally screwed, too. All of, the, all of everybody out there said, you know, we finally found a, a man that's going to stand up for us and make life better for us and stand up for America and do all of the things that all of the politicians said they were going to do, but he did it. And then the Republicans... And the Democrats, the politicians, stole the election from us, the, we the people. Yeah, they, yeah, Trump got it stolen for him, but more importantly, we had an election stolen from us. We were not allowed to have the president that we wanted. And then we got these uh, Senate hearings where you got to discuss what a man is and what a girl is and all the different ludicrous in and outs of that. 
And while that's going on, you mentioned Tucker. Well, I guess you, you know, what are, you say right now, you know the Democrats are not going to do anything about the report that the coronavirus was basically released by the Chinese military on purpose. And I don't know if you remember this big old wrestler guy that used to tell you all that a few years ago, that it probably was released on purpose by China. Well, it was. And it was released on purpose by China with the help of American taxpayer dollars. And I'm wondering if every freedom country, all the democracies weren't in on it also. I said, they, they, I said the coronavirus gave the political ruling class more power over the, over the people of this world than any one thing in this history. So I, I really think that the coronavirus was, was a collaboration of all of the countries of the world not all of them, well, some of them didn't participate, but most of them did. And they're still using that. They found out what they could get away with with us. And they're going to keep pushing stuff like this on us. And if we don't fight, we're in trouble. But what are the Republicans, Republicans going to do when they take office about China buying our land, about Biden, daggone off, getting rid of all? any any laws that where we you know where we kind of police China stealing and and their uh rise to power of their espionage. I mean right now the uh, coronavirus and, and the Democrat Party and uh, these other globalists are on the road to making China the most powerful country on earth. They're intentionally trying to destroy us. So the question is what will Lindsey Graham and the rest of those candy ass Republicans do if we do get the house and the senate back what will they do kid thank you breeze appreciate it well i mean that, that goes back to something i argued a minute ago about progressive conservatism we, we've got to understand that the debate about limited government small government is over i mean we lost that debate we don't have to lose the next one but we lost that debate we're not going back to the age and era of limited government the only way we go back to limited government if i get my way and we have an article 5 convention of the states 34 agree 38 ratify and we abolish the fed I mean, if we abolish the Fed, we're going to be forced back to an age of limited government. That ain't happening. I mean, I, I hypothesize on that and theorize that ain't happening. I mean, I've accepted we're not going to have a convention of the states. We're not going to abolish the Fed. So, so we've got to accept. We don't have to embrace, but we've got to accept that we lost that debate. Nobody fought hard enough on our side for limited government. You and I live in a big government country, and we're going to live until we die in a big government country. If we're going to live in a big government country, then what do we do when we're in charge of that big government? What sort of ideas and agenda do we have? In other words, we're going to I mean, we're still going to send mailers out to voters saying, vote for me and I'll restore limited government. That's a lie. You're a liar. You're not going to restore limited government back to Washington. That train has left the barn. That horse has left the station. That ain't happening ever again. I know I got that wrong, but there's kind of an inside joke with Rev and I. Um <laughs> We, we've got we've got to enact policies that that empower this America First movement and and give the power back to the we the people. In other words, we, we don't make policies that advantage corporations. You, you said something Monday, I think, or it might have been Friday. Um, the Friday well, it was Monday because it could have been we were off last week. Yeah. Um, I've turned you into an anti corporatist. Yes, you have. I mean, you know, you were not as as rigid about that. I mean, I've always been an anti corporatist. I think you, when you say I'm pro business, what does that mean? Are you pro small business? Are you pro-medium-sized business or are you a corporatist? Because I think corporatists are pro-business. They're just pro-big business. I mean, there was a reason the big boxes were allowed to stay open and mom and pops were not during the pandemic. You know why? Because government is full of corporatists. 
I mean, that, that's pro-business, but it's pro a certain kind of business. America First has to revert to empowering and advantaging the small businesses that employ most people. Um, not as many as it used to because the, the small businesses have been encumbered by burdens of, of government inflow, government regulation, and the big business can absorb that. So, so I mean, yeah, we got to have a progressive conservative agenda, but it's not going to be about limited government. It's going to be about we're in charge of government now. What do we do? Let's take a break. Back in a minute. You know, everything doesn't have to be 100% for or 100% against. I mean, some things kind of cut both ways. And I think John Bolton appeared on Jake Tapper's show yesterday. And Bolton is an old hand in Washington. I mean, it's one of the people I really believe Trump shouldn't have hired. I mean, they, they don't have any alignment. I mean, Bolton is an interventionist. He's a globalist. Uh, he's a, a kind of an insider. Um, he's an accomplished man. He's a smart man. But he's not sympathetic to America first by any stretch of the imagination. But Trump probably just said, we've got to have somebody do this job. I mean, John's done it a long time. Let's see if we can get him back in uh, in the fold. But Bolton appears at, uh, with Jake Tapper and basically says, look, I'm, I'm no fan of Trump. I mean, I like the way Washington worked before he got here. But but you guys are reaching if you believe he's strategically ployed and planned uh, a coup. Let's go there. Uh, in connection with uh, the lie about the uh, election fraud. None of it is defensible. None of it is defensible. Uh, it's also a mistake, as some people have said, including on the committee, the commentators, that somehow this was a carefully planned coup d'etat aimed at the Constitution. That's not the way Donald Trump does things. It's rambling from one half-vast idea to another, one plan that falls through and another comes up. That, that's what he was doing. As I say, none of it defensible. But you have to understand the nature of what the problem of Donald Trump is. He's, to use a Star Wars metaphor, a disturbance in the force. And it's not an attack on our democracy. It's Donald Trump looking out for Donald Trump. It's a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. I don't know that I agree with you, to be, to be uh, fair, with all due respect. Uh, one doesn't have to be brilliant to attempt a coup? Uh, I disagree with that. As somebody who has helped plan coup d'etat, yeah. not here, but, you know, other places, uh, it takes a lot of work. And that's not what he did. It was just stumbling around from one idea to another. Ultimately, he did unleash the rioters at the Capitol. As to that, there's no doubt. But not to overthrow the Constitution, to buy more time to throw the matter back to the states to try and redo the issue. And if you don't believe that, you're going to overreact. And I think that's a real risk for the committee, which has done a lot of good work, mostly when the witnesses testify, not when the members are opining. Uh, it is invariably the case that when you go too far trying to prove your case, you undermine it. And I think you've got to give credit to the intelligence of the American people to listen to the witnesses and let them come to the conclusion. And I think the uh, fellow who had actually gone into the Capitol who said today that he had blinders on and he was too loyal to one person. That is the central point. I, I do want to ask a follow-up. Um, when we were talking about what is capable or what you need to do to be able to plan a coup, and you, you cited your expertise having planned coups. I'm not going to get into the specifics, but... Uh, Successful coups? Well, I wrote about Venezuela in, uh, in the book, and uh, it, it turned out not to be successful. Not that we had all that much to do with it, but I saw what it took for an opposition to try and overturn an illegally elected president, and they failed. The notion that Donald Trump was half as competent as the Venezuelan opposition is laughable. 
But I think there's another... I feel like you're this other stuff you're not telling me, though. I think I'm sure there is. Uh, I think there's another point here that, that came out in the testimony that's not been stressed enough. Uh, testimony, uh, uh, deposition testimony by, I think his name was Donnell Harvin. I, I may have taken that down wrong. The, the chief of uh, intelligence and homeland security for the District of Columbia government, who said we were watching Twitter after Trump's tweet calling for the demonstration on right. January the 6th. We saw all of these implications, all of the concerns about the violence. I want to know where the rest of the government was, and I particularly want to know where members of Congress were. If this was so evident at the time, why there wasn't more security on the Hill long before the, the demonstrators ever turned up? No, it's a good question. Absolutely. You know, the spoken word is not an accomplishment, but it matters a lot in politics. And you got to be careful about what you say and who you say it around. I mean, in my time in politics, I was a bit careless at times and said things, and I regretted having said those things. I don't regret saying it. I just regret who heard me say those things. Um, we went from Trump saying crazy things to Biden saying crazy things, and now Jill Biden doesn't want to be left out. So she says, when speaking to a bunch of a group of Texas Hispanics, that they were as unique as breakfast tacos. I think she was in San Antonio, if I'm not mistaken. Jeff me. Manasso is in Chicago. He's with Fox News. He's with us this morning. Jeff, good morning. How are you? So, um, hey, I'm doing well, guys. Good morning. Do we put Jill Biden in the same category with President Biden and Donald Trump and me and anybody else who's ever said anything they regret? Yeah, well, Donald Trump got a lot of uh, flack when he, uh, he tweeted back in 2016 a happy Cinco de Mayo tweet and uh, also saying that uh, the best Taco Bowls are made in Trump Tower, uh, and that he loves Hispanics. And so, uh, you, you know, the, the parts of parts of the left left wing, far left meet, wing media, uh, still blasting him today over over that tweet. And so, perhaps Jill Biden is fair game when she compares uh, Hispanics to to uh, to breakfast tacos. Also, slaughtering the name Bodegas uh, of the Bronx uh, in in that speech. And um, so, so now her her press secretary is apologizing in a tweet on her behalf. Uh, in, in, in you know for for the for those remarks, um, the first lady's remarks, shocking also many in the Latino community who viewed her remarks as out of touch or, or even racist. Jeff, having said that, I mean I, I've read polling because of what I do every morning for four hours, and um, th there's a bit of a shift of Hispanics to the Republican Party. Um, does this play into that narrative? I'm not asking you to play consultant or strategist, but but uh, but it's obvious that you know the the Hispanic vote uh, was more friendly to the Republican candidate in 2020 than it was in 16. Um, when you say things like this, it may create a little more energy or momentum in that direction. It's a big deal because one of the reasons why Jill Biden, the White House, was in San Antonio was for outreach to Hispanics uh, and, and who, by all accounts, they're now hemorrhaging support for Hispanics. We, we saw that uh, in, in, uh, in Texas, Maya Flores, uh, who won that special election last month, uh, switching a, 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 a seat that had never been read. It is now red. Uh, she won that seat. And, you know, she weighed in with a gif of a you know, former Jill Biden speech in which the first lady flubbed the pronunciation of si se puede, or yes, we can. Um, yeah, you know, there, there, is a, there are a lot of conservative Hispanics, uh, some who are running for office uh, this year, uh, this, uh, this fall, uh, who are basically linking Jill Biden's appearance at the event with the, with, with the crisis at the border, which is uh, seen a record influx of illegal immigrants. And 
Um, yeah, it's going to be used as, as campaign fodder. Uh, it's going to be used against the Democrats, just like Trump's tweet was used against him and Republicans. Obviously, you know, you, you, you've been in the business. You, you know how it works. You, you get a little gift like that. And, uh, and, and you run with it. But, you know, what does it mean to, to Hispanics, to the Latino community? Um, by all accounts, they're upset about being compared to breakfast tacos. Well explained. Jeff, thank you for your time. Have a great day, sir. You bet. Um, you know, I, I've got a simple explanation here, and I think I'm on point. Um, and then forgive me. I mean, but we're going to call it like we see it. When, when Obama made mistakes, it wasn't because he was dumb. I mean, nobody accused Barack Obama of being dumb. I mean, he's dangerous. I think he's incredibly dangerous. And I think part of the danger is he's, he's really bright. Um, nobody accuses Trump of being dumb. I mean, he's out of control. He says things he, he shouldn't say. He reacts. I think John Bolton nailed it. I mean, I think the bit we played before we went to the break, I think Bolton's all over Trump. Um, there's some compliments in there, and, and there's some derogatory statements to be um, kind of d- dissected that, that Bolton said. If you think Trump sat around with Bannon and other masterminds like Robert Cahaley and figured out a way to overthrow the government and, and threaten democracy, then you're just a, a never-Trumper. I mean, there's nothing I'll ever do to change your mind. You've convinced yourself that Trump is an imminent threat to American democracy. I mean, if you've landed there, there's nothing I could ever do to change your mind. I mean, I don't buy that for a single second. Um, it's easy to convince me that Trump makes it up as he goes. I mean, it's easy to convince me that he says things uh, and an hour later, doesn't remember what he says and says something else. I mean, he's kind of a fly by the seat of his pants business guy, but he's been real, real successful flying by the seat of his pants. I would imagine his gut and instinct lead him more than what the um, what the consulting class would say or not. But but I think when you look at Jill Biden and Joe Biden and the mistakes they make, I think it's just they're, they're not real bright. I mean, they're not real smart people. Um, I know one because I'm one myself. I mean, you know, the the God must have loved the average man because he made so many of us. And I think Joe Biden and Jill Biden are very average people. I think they have very average intelligence and they're in the job that requires, I mean, especially the presidency, the first lady could be um, a little more distant and, and, and aloof. I mean, aloof would be a good word here uh, because she's not, we didn't vote for her. I mean, along with her, along with him comes her. I mean, we've always had a first lady or not always, but presidents who are married and the married and the wife's alive um, I guess Buttigieg would break the mold. Uh, we'd have a you know a president, a first man, if indeed that's the case, or a um, uh, a person who can become pregnant. I mean, I don't know if we call him a man anymore. Uh, is he a person who could become pregnant or not? Does he have a uterus and does he um, have ovaries? Uh, yeah, that's kind of where this debate has digressed or devolved. Um, but but no, I think it's it's a, it's a it's a fairly simple explanation to me when I hear Biden struggle or I look at Jill Biden and she says things. Um, politically ambitious people who have the the acumen to go along with it, they just don't make these sorts of mistakes. They make mistakes. I mean, everybody makes mistakes. But but these people seem to be out of there. They're in the deep end without their life vest. And somebody needs to throw them a life vest real quick or they're going to drown. Now, there's a movement in America today amongst the Democrats uh, trying to figure out, and New York Times talks a little bit about this. This is kind of an extreme example. But the Times in their story uh, basically say that, you know, we may get rid of this cat before November. I mean, when you look at the right track, wrong track, when you look at um, everything they've tried to get him back focused and back in in good graces, nothing has worked. Um, so when the Times ran the article, and once again, I mean, this is ventriloquist journalism. I mean, this is saying things without saying things. They ain't moving their mouth, 
but they're surely saying exactly what it is I expect uh, to be said. But it is the most influential news outlet for Democrat voters in America. I mean, the Times is still where the, the, the modern-day liberal Democrat goes to, to get the news that they believe and trust and, and put faith and value in. But then you go and the Times runs a poll and the next day. That, now, once again, um, this brutal news story about Biden's age and lack of focus, um, the, 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 I mean, I'll say it, the incapacities and the, the, the increasing number of faux pas that he makes. Um, then they go down the road of running this poll in conjunction with Siena College that says 64% of Democrat voters don't want Biden to run again. I mean, that's two in three Democrat voters that don't want the incumbent president of the United States to run again. That same Siena poll had Biden's job approval at about 33%. I mean, that's Nixon Watergate numbers. I mean, that's when Nixon's walking up the plane, you know, declaring himself not a crook, but I'm the hell out of here. Uh, I mean, that, his numbers were at about 31, 32, 33%. Um, so, so the public are all, the, the public are aware of how incapacitated he is as an American president. I don't know that the public is willing to express how stupid they believe he is or dumb. Uh, I don't think those are ugly words. I mean, they're dumb people in the world. They're smart people in the world. I think Biden is a very, very average intelligence. And if he were doing certain things in certain walks of life, he could probably hide that, that inferiority. But when you're president, you can't. And once again, Biden, excuse me, Obama said things that make me cringe, but I never felt he was dumb. I never felt he was out of his element. I mean, he didn't have any business training and he was a terrible manager, but you would expect a professor in charge of the world's largest economy to fail miserably and to get some things wrong. Um, and he said outlandish things, but I don't think he ever said anything. I mean, you're not in your head. I mean, I never felt when Obama said things, wow, that was a stupid, I mean, that, that was not only dumb, it was obviously said by a dumb no, man. I agree. I mean, there were a lot of things he said, and I'm like, wow. I mean, did the president just say that? Yes, he did. But I think he was very strategic. I think he was very understanding of where the, um, the, the American people are, and that's the quality of successful presidents have um i just don't think biden's smart I, I just don't think he's a smart man i don't think she's a smart man i don't think there's anything in their history to suggest that we're going to be able to effectively manage the affairs of our nation's politics there's nothing about joe biden that is very impressive i mean i guess the one thing he's figured out a way to stay in politics for 50 or 60 years he's figured out a way to make his son and brother wealthy I mean, if you you know, if you think that's important and a factor in, he figured out a way to get the White House sure. spinning the campaign in the basement. Well, I mean, he's played the game, you know, and he's, he's, he's I think he got challenged yesterday on some of this New York Times reporting, and he um and he kind of stumbles around and fumbles around, and I mean, he didn't try to shake a hand; it wasn't there, but but he did. <laughs> but he get mad. He got real mad, yeah. got real angry. But he I turned mean, around to the reporter and says, "Hey, Jack, listen but, here." But people with dementia are real short fused. I mean, I've read a lot about dementia and Alzheimer's. They're real short fused. Uh, and they get angry at times. They get real ornery at times. And um, yeah, but but Biden recounted a number, 92%. Uh, somebody said about, are you going to run again? Of course, I'm going to run. 92% of my voters, Democrat voters are going to vote. No, the question was, if Trump and Biden ran, who would you vote for? Well, I mean, newsflash, the Democrats ain't vote for Trump. I mean, that, there is no, I mean, that's nothing to be, that's his high watermark. The fact that he gets 92% of Democrat voters in a eventual matchup of Biden and Trump. And I'll tell you, the Vegas money is probably on that matchup. I mean, if someone had a gun to my head today and said, what is the likelihood 
of Biden running against Trump in 24, it'd be more likely than any other matchup. I mean, I think there's a chance of DeSantis and Hillary. I think there's a chance of Harris and DeSantis. I think there's a, a chance of Trump and Hillary. I mean, I think there's a chance for, for a multitude of matchups. Uh, Newsom and DeSantis, I think, is uh, something a lot of people are beginning to talk about. But I think the odds are that the best chance is that Joe Biden will run against Donald Trump. Now, it's not 50% or better, but it's probably one in three. I mean, if you ran computer models and you put in the information necessary to give it whatever, you know, like hurricane modeling, the, the most popular model, the most, uh, the most likely outcome would be uh, Biden versus Trump. Who wins that matchup? I think Trump wins it. I mean, I don't think he wins it going away, but I think Trump wins it. And a lot of people believe that Trump wins it because Wisconsin has outlawed uh, drop boxes. We haven't talked much about that, but Wisconsin has outlawed drop boxes. Um, a lot of the Georgia is now the most um, stringent, stringent state in voting requirement in America. Uh, Pennsylvania great turnout in their primaries. Yeah, uh, Pennsylvania hasn't done much of anything. Um, but yeah, I mean, Georgia, Wisconsin, um, some of these states have addressed some of the issues of COVID. And um, the unusual way that we allowed people to vote. I, you know, when I think about it, I said yesterday and got scolded by some, some listeners. Um, I just think the quicker we allow Trump to be the, the chairman emeritus of America first, the better off the movement is. Uh, Carl took me to task on that. Um, many, uh, two or three friends of mine text me during uh, the show and took me to task on Trump 24, Trump 24. I get it. I mean, I understand yeah, I it. want four more years. But I, I, I want him to I mean, fill you, his eight-year term. You, you've been very consistent in that. Um, and then I'm, let's hand it off to DeSantis. Well, I mean, I, I'm just more inclined to believe, well, I mean, DeSantis is going to have to wait. I mean, if Trump decides to run, I had somebody ask me, you know, what about a Trump-DeSantis primary? No, Ron DeSantis can't do that. I mean, if Trump decides to run, DeSantis at his age must wait. I mean, if he's got anybody giving him good advice. Maybe he beats Trump. It's more likely that he doesn't. But then he's offended the Trump voter. I mean, he stained himself. He's tainted. The Trump voter will tell you right now, DeSantis is my second choice. I mean, I want Trump, but I'll take DeSantis if Trump doesn't run. If DeSantis was to take on Trump in a primary, I mean, he just obliterates that brand that he has. Um, and they can't run together because they both live in Florida unless one moves their residency, unless Trump moves to New York where he lived most of his life, but right now his permanent residence is in uh, Florida. DeSantis is in Florida. The president and vice president can't live in the same state. And um, But I just can't imagine for the life of me, Trump picking DeSantis and DeSantis accepting, excuse me, I can see that mm-hmm. um, if they lived in different states, but I can't see DeSantis. I mean, if DeSantis is that bullheaded, then this show will be a lot more fun than I thought it would without Trump. I mean, if DeSantis is crazy enough, to say, you know, th- I'm not waiting. I mean, you know, it's not, you're not waiting eight years. Remember, you're waiting four years, right? So, so that's not long. I mean, in fact, if, if DeSantis doesn't run and Trump does, I mean, DeSantis can get to work the day after uh, beginning to prepare Trump for help his presidency. But it's interesting to me, there's still Republicans out there who believe that Larry Hogan or Sununu Please. or someone like that, I mean, a Romney re- uh, reshape. Uh, no, that's that ain't happening, no guys. Way. I mean that that's not happening at all. And I want to say this: um, I think we're better off if Trump doesn't run, but if he does, I'll fly the flag as high as anybody. I'll carry the water as far as anybody. 
I'll lift as much as anybody to get that son of a gun elected. You got my word on that. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a bit. 843-661-0937. Not only am I talkative since we've been back, Rev's more talkative than he normally is. He takes the headset, he puts it down, he wants to talk about not the Braves, not Springsteen, but he wants to talk about politics in general but you made some interesting points here well you know i'm, I'm trying rare, to rare but you have i'm trying to engage and i'll bounce ideas off you but let's talk about trump so okay. blind loyalty to trump i'll use myself as an example because you asked me during the last segment you know if i would of course i, I, I said during the last segment i support trump i would be for him I want, I want him to have four more years as the president so do you think people like me have too much of a blind loyalty to him. See, I don't know that I can answer that question. The only thing I can say is the reason that I would rather him not. Um, I think you'll accept this. Well, I, I said yesterday, when, when, the, when the radio stops working, you go to that back room. I don't have any idea what you're doing, but you get us back on the air. I think you would accept that politics is kind of my back room. I mean, I, I probably do understand it a little bit. Oh, yeah. I don't want to say better than you, but I understand <laughs> you it do. differently than you. you me? Um, I'll be insulting. You probably play checkers. And, and I would play, not 4D chess, but I'd probably play chess to some degree. If I went to that back room, I'd be completely out of my element. <laughs> but, but I do believe that we have to accept. I mean, and it's kind of a balance. Um, I am loyal to Trump, but not to a fault. I'm more loyal with the movement. I, I think that America First could be the sustainable political movement uh, that, that integrates populism and nationalism and non-interventionism and a lot of the ingredients that I believe are important. And, and I think the reason I am so passionate about that is where I come from. Well, let me, and let me tell you where I come from being loyal to Trump or, okay. or have, having an affection And there's nothing him. wrong with it. Don't, don't apologize for being loyal no, to Trump because he got screwed. And, that, and, and, and you that wanted to point. get a fair shake. That, that, I get that. that. I think that you know, kind of in, enforced that loyalty because, A, I think he was a good president, and I think he was up against that Washington machine that just treated him unfairly. Now, okay, would you rather Trump get four more years or America First get 40 years? Well, well absolutely America okay, First Okay, and for that's the years, angle yeah. I'm taking. I mean, once again, I am as passionate about Trump's presidency as you are. I mean, it was upsetting the apple cart. It was breaking the glass. I mean, it was doing all these things that everybody and they talked about. they beat the crap out of they, him they for did. four years. And, and, and look, who can, who can create empathy for Donald Trump other than the federal government? <laughs> right. I mean, they're, they're, Trump is the most, Trump is the least person in the world to have empathy for, except when he's dealing with the federal government. I mean, they're the big bad bully. They're the mafia. They're, they're the ones that he's trying to, to take on, on our behalf. So I perfectly understand what would the loyalty. I do. And I don't think it's a blind loyalty. I think it's a deserved loyalty. I think he, I think you deserve to have a right to be loyal. And he deserves that loyalty. I just tend to look at this movement in, in a little bit different sort of way. And, and I look at it as a 40-year a sustainable political movement, similar to the Reagan Revolution, that can fundamentally change the way this country is governed and make my kids' lives better. I don't know that Trump in four years can do that. He contributed mightily to breaking down the barriers. But, but once again, I'm more interested in the next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jim and Florence. Good morning, Jim. Hey, good morning, guys. So what would be a fun scenario is if DeSantis picked Trump as his running mate, and then that way Trump could always dangle it in front of the Democrats that he's going to run again for the rest of his life. He could just pick <laughs> on him and drive him crazy. But, uh, um, but Ken, did, did John Bolton just prove that absolutely everything we learned in grade school about our government is a lie. I, yeah, it's one thing. It's one thing to kind of like you know, you know, 
banter with friends back and forth that the CIA did this or the CIA did that, but the CIA just, I mean, they just admitted it on, on national TV. And how can we ever trust the CIA, the FBI, the DOD? How can we ever trust them again? And Ken, the world that I was raised in, in the, in the eighties and early two, I mean, the nineties and the early two thousands was that an allegiance to government, not just our constitution ideals, but patriotism was this allegiance to government. But there's no way I can allow that to be taught to my sons where they can be allegiant to the Constitution or our ideals and be a patriot. But I don't think being a patriot has anything to do with being allegiant to our government any longer. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jim. I think the most patriotic thing you can do is resist your government. I think the most patriotic thing you can do in America today is to not trust what your government says. And I think, once again, let's go back to Trump, that the central figure in this episode of American government is Donald Trump. And the people that need you to trust government have fleeced your government. That's the, the irony in all this. The people that have so resisted Donald Trump and despised Trump and wanted him thrown out of office and, and, and it didn't matter what Zuckerberg did, didn't matter what Ohio did, didn't matter what Wisconsin did, it doesn't matter. Anything to get this guy away from the levers of power, folks, they had more at risk than you ever imagined. I mean, that, that's kind of the, the, the narrative that we need to hang on to here. And I think the most patriotic thing you can do today in America is not trust your government. The DOJ has proven to be corrupt. Merrick Garland will not enforce a law that is on the books as we speak. There's a law written that says you cannot protest nor intimidate Supreme Court justices. The Attorney General of the United States refuses to enforce a law. The government does not deserve your trust and your faith. And I believe that if America First continues to prosper and flourish and benefit and, and put more people like J.D. Vance and, and Blake Masters, and here's the question that, that none of us want to have to answer. Are they who they say they are? Is Blake Masters really an America Firster? Does Blake Masters have a place in his heart? He's a tech gazillionaire. I mean, he's in Teal's world. Is Blake Masters, he's not a gazillionaire, he'd be a millionaire. Teals is a gazillionaire. Uh, is Blake Masters sincere, or is he simply, you know, playing the political game? The the wind is blowing America first way right now in the Amer in the Republican primary. No doubt about it. I mean, there are some people that are very friendly to me that don't like it. I mean, they are disgusted that that I'm on board with this movement. That they are, uh, we're still friends to some degree, but it's it's caused some trouble in a few friendships of mine. Uh, in fact, I'm not, there's three or four or five people in my political world that prior to Trump, we talked about every week. We don't talk anymore. I mean, they, they, you know, they don't reach out to me. I don't reach out really? to them. I don't know who initiated that. But but for some reason, the people that I would bounce things off of and they would bounce things off of me, we don't do that anymore. That there's this unspoken barrier that has all of a sudden been put up. Now, now once again, I've never pledged loyalty. Here, here to your word, loyalty. I have never pledged loyalty to Donald Trump. I am 100% loyal to America first. Is J.D. Vance? Don't know. Is Blake Masters? Don't know. Um, is Donald Trump? Don't know. Is Ted Cruz? Don't know. Is Rand Paul? Don't know. You know, it's not, it, it, there's, it's, it's really, it's, it's more stupid to say I do know. I don't know what makes Blake Masters, I mean, I know the campaign he's running. The first ad Blake Masters ran in Arizona and, and Kahaley told me, I mean, remember, we played the ad. We may do that in the next break. It's a good time to, to do that. Masters ran an ad when he announced his candidacy in Arizona that said the election was stolen. I mean, he comes out of the gate 
first thing out of his mouth. I called Kahaley and I said, Robert, that's stupid. Have you seen the polling on, on people who believe the election was stolen? It's divided. I mean, it's about 50-50. And he said, yeah, but not in Arizona. It may be in Manhattan. It may be in um, Shemung, New York, but not in Arizona. Why? Because in Arizona, somebody knows a cousin or a nephew or a niece or, a, or an aunt or an uncle whose vote was not counted or counted twice or didn't vote absentee. I mean, Arizona is one of the states that had a lot of controversy. I mean, there were a lot of money spent by Zuckerberg in Arizona. But, but, but the question that I have to come to grips with, you've settled it for you. I mean, you know where you are. You want Trump to run and, and, and make good how he got wrong. I mean, in essence, that's kind of what yep. you want him to get what he deserved. Right. And you don't think he did. The, the, the quandary that I find myself in, these people that I push and that I argue on behalf of, I mean, how many times have I said Blake Masters, P Blake, uh, Peter Thiel, and J.D. Vance? I mean, how many of you knew who they were? Josh Hawley, how many of you knew who they were before we started going down that rabbit hole? Are they who they say they are? I'm banking that they are, but are they? Do you have it? I do. Hey, Blake Masters is now leading in the Arizona Republican primary. When Blake Masters ran this ad to introduce himself to the Arizona voter, I was like, wow, that is risky. Here it is. I think Trump won in 2020. Maybe you disagree, but you've got to admit, this election was really messed up. We saw states change the rules at the last minute to flood the zone with mail-in ballots. The media, they'd tell any lie in order to hurt President Trump. And big tech censored true information about Joe Biden in the weeks leading up to the election. How is that fair? Trump wins big in a fair fight. I'm Blake Masters. I'm running for the U.S. Senate in Arizona. And I approve this message because election integrity is the most important issue. We got to do so much better if we want to keep this country great. He was at about 6 or 8%. He's at 25% now. He's the front runner. I didn't say he's a shoe-in, but he's the front runner in Arizona, the Republican primary. Now, here's the question. Is that Blake Masters being a politician? Or is that sincerely, genuinely what he believes? The, the, the strategy is the right strategy. Confrontational, in your face, shut up and sit down. I'm tired of you telling me to shut up and sit down. Um, it's an aggressive, it's a very, very aggressive political campaign. And it's working in Arizona. Blake Masters is really the model. I mean, J.D. Vance didn't quite do that in, uh, in Ohio. It was similar to that, but he didn't quite do that. But, but here's what I think those guys do. They add some intellectual underpinning. I mean, so some some grit. Um, can we all agree that Trump was not as politically organized as we wish he were? I mean, I think Bolton Obviously. nailed it. I mean, I think I think Trump's kind of a make it up as you go guy. I can relate. I can very much relate. Um, fire pops up here, we'll out that and start another one over here. I just think that's the nature of his personality. But these guys aren't like that. I mean, the masters and Vance and Teals of the world. I mean, it, a little more disciplined in their delivery. Um, they don't have the personality that Trump. That they're not as charismatic and bombastic and um, dominating as Trump, but but th this these are the guys that we need to be sincere in advancing this political agenda that I hope and pray shapes American politics for many 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 days to come. Let's go to the phone. Tim in Florence. Good morning, Tim. Hey, what's up, guys? Hey, Tim. Hey, Ken. I I don't know if you brought it up um, this week or not, but I just figured I would. You know, you talked about making sure we take care of our kids you know, for the future. And so I look around when we have voting locally and, uh, you know, I saw we got a violent uh, task force, violent crime task force. 
And Ken, I remember you had two candidates come on your show and uh, one of them said we didn't have what again, Ken? We didn't have a crime problem, right? I remember that well. One said we did, the other said we didn't. Yeah. So I just, I want to keep reminding people when we go to vote, make sure we don't make it necessarily a popularity contest. And this is not against that candidate, but it's also against, we have a ton of violent crimes. I can't wait to see what the stats are going to be for Florence coming up here real soon. I'm sure it's going to be awful and I'm not blaming anyone or any specific thing. I'm just saying it's out of control and to have somebody come on the show, say we don't have a crime problem when how many shootings do we have daily and deaths that we have weekly and it's just ridiculous. I'll take it off the air. Thank you, Tim. I follow Tanya Brown. That's kind of where I get my news from locally because nobody else does it. I mean, give Tanya credit. Uh, she is a lady dedicated to covering the news in a place that people have just given up on. You know, and I get it. I mean, the media is left for the beach. The majority of media is down there now. I mean, I, I certainly understand the TV stations. It's the great struggle we have. One of our competing markets. It's a similar market, but it's a competing market. Same television network or same TV market, Rev, uh, but a different radio market. Is that fair to say? That's exactly Uh, right. Rev has told me before, there was a day um, not too long ago that Myrtle Beach and Florence were about the same size of radio market, somewhere the 150-ish. I mean, am am I right? I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth here. 180. Okay, 180. Uh, Myrtle Beach and Horry County will probably be a top 50 if they're not already. And it was basically Florence, Myrtle Beach. So, like, the TV station studios and operations were in Florence, and they had satellite offices and studios at Myrtle Beach, just in a little strip mall or something. And that changed. Yeah, now all their uh, infrastructure is at the beach. They do some um, some kind of side work over here. Um, but yeah, it, it, we, we're more familiar with the radio market. So Myrtle Beach, I mean, it's probably a top 50 radio market in America today, um, probably and, and heading even higher and higher with all the population growth. So there, there's a struggle here with assets and resources and deployment of those resources. But I'll give Tanya Brown credit. I mean, when I need to know what's going on around here, uh, I kind of go to her site or go to her Facebook page, and uh, she updates me. I don't think she knows she's updating me, but she is. Um, But it seems to me about every other day there's a shooting in Florence. There's a shooting in Darlington. There's a shooting in Williamsburg County, and it's really Florence. I mean, it's it's Florence one day and Florence the next day and Florence the following day. There was a shooting uh, here and a shooting there. There's a drive-by. There's a robbery, and I think uh, one of these on-the-go convenience stores got you know robbed and someone got shot in, in that i mean that just didn't happen in days gone by so i think tim we can look at this twofold um we did have a candidate that say we didn't have a problem uh, apparently since being elected they realized they've got a problem and now they're putting a task force in place but but guys i'm telling you when you go to the poll and you vote for mayors and city council members and county council members i get the splash pads and tennis courts and and museums and performing i get all that i mean it, all those are amenities and they add to the quality of life but never forget none of that matters if we don't lay down at night safe and right now in florence and i mean at this at this particular moment in time our law enforcement needs help i mean they need political support that they need kind of an ancillary support agency i think law enforcement is genuinely i know at the county level i can't speak the city because i don't have as many friendships there i know at the county how committed sheriff tj joy is to making sure you're safe and I just hope some of the political leadership understand their obligation and responsibility as a priority is not to the museum, not to the Performing Arts Center, not to a ball field, but rather you, the citizen, living your life in with a certain degree of comfort that you're safe. And 
I don't know that that's the case in Florence right now. In fact, I know it's not the case, and it must be addressed, and it must be made a priority. And the day the person said in this studio, we don't have a crime problem in, in Florence, was the day that I knew we would eventually end up having this conversation. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Here's Ray in Florence. Good morning, Ray. Uh, good morning. Uh, this is Ray. Uh, I consider myself an American first Republican constitutionalist. Now, when I look at it, and you were talking about Trump and whether Trump was uh, got the uh, raw deal or not, uh, I'm not as concerned about that as I am the fact that uh, I want to have America first. And I want to have a leader who knows the deepest parts of the swamp. And I think that Trump has done it uh, in his first term. He's learned a lot of the deepness of the swamp. And he's. Uh, I think that the team that he had put together toward the end of his term was outstanding. And I would love to see him be able to get back in there and use that team or one like it to advance the cause of American first Republican constitutionalism. I uh, feel that uh, he has, uh, if, if, you know, somebody, somebody has said that if, if we take the, the uh, house, then uh, they can uh, select the, their uh, leader and uh, it doesn't have to be a house member. And if they chose uh, uh, Trump, well, then we could impeach uh, the the top two and and get Trump in there, and then we could, he could run again, and we could have him for for another uh, six years. So <laughs> that's it's kind of an interesting thought. Uh, just like your thoughts concerning it. Thank you, Ray. I uh, appreciate that. Wake huh. up! Wake up! Wake up! Wake up! You're dreaming. You're dreaming. Um, I get it, <laughs> but I hear you loud and clear. Um, I think the the point Ray made about Trump didn't realize how deep the swamp was. I don't think anybody did. I mean, I can remember a few moments during the campaign when I was like, holy crap. I mean, I, nothing makes me say holy crap in politics. I mean, when you've been in it and been around it and, and, and have you know, been a part of it, you, very little shocks you. But when, when, when DOJ becomes weaponized, when the media refuses to report on a bombshell of a story, I mean, there, there were a few moments during the campaign um, that I was like, wow, when... When impeachment comes just a few days after you go to office and we're having a January 6th hearing, I mean, it's almost like it's a surreal experience that Pelosi's having a January 6th committee that includes nobody appointed by a fellow Republican. I mean, the minority party is not represented at all in any of these hearings, in any of these um, proceedings. Oh, but Cheney. But, 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 but the point I'm trying to make, Rev, is, I mean, when, when Ray said, you know, I don't think Trump understood the extent of, of the swamp. I don't think anybody did. I mean, I think we'd have been embarrassed had we allowed ourselves to believe some of these things that we dealt with were going to have to be dealt with. Uh, once again, the DOJ, the FBI, the CIA, the National Security uh, Department, I mean, all of these were weaponized in a way to stop Trump from getting elected. Uh, and it worked, didn't work the first time, did work the second time. We can argue about what they, what they added to that. In other words, everybody involved in government was opposed to Trump and the movement. And they were willing to do things that I never imagined in a million years. I thought Comey had some discretion. I thought Comey had some, uh, not discretion, I thought he had some uh, courage. I thought he's had some um, concern about his legacy. And it's obvious he didn't. I mean, it's obvious that, the, you know, he felt or he feels 
that his legacy is more preserved and pristine if he stops Trump. It doesn't matter what the right thing is or wrong thing to do. Um, these people made their minds up that this was too big a threat. Now, and, and here's where we go down the rabbit hole of, well, why is Trump such a threat? Well, it, it's simple. Trump is a threat because he is a game changer. He is a disruptor. And when you put all the plates where you want the plates to be, all of the dishes where you want the everything is exactly where you want it to be. The last thing you want is a bowl in that china shop. I mean, you built the china shop. Everything is exactly where it needs to be, not for the betterment of the American people, not on behalf of the American people, not in the interest of the American people. Those items are there because they advantage you. They benefit you. And you can't take a chance of letting anybody come in and change that. Now, there's another um, kind of argument I make at times. It's kind of the incompetence factor. Um, Let's use the Fed. We've not talked about the Fed today. Um, There are people close to Wall Street and finance who understand how bad a situation we have on our hands. But they can't say anything. Um, It's a little bit interesting. There's an old saying. What is it? Um, When what you know... Um, when what you know doesn't pay as well as what you believe. And and what you believe is because you have to believe it. I'll get that quote right on the other side. But there, there's kind of a, there's an old quote, um, you know this to be true, but you need that to be true. So you refuse to believe what you know. Instead, you believe what you hope is true because what you hope is true is far more personally beneficial. Take a break. Back in just a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Here is Matt in Florence. Good morning, Matt. Hey guys, uh, I was just thinking about uh, talking about Donald Trump. I'm in kind of a strange place with all that. Like, I don't want him to run again, but I also want him to be the leader of the party, regardless of who gets elected. Uh, I don't know. I just uh, I feel like he's a little bit too polarizing of a figure. Uh, to try to put back in office, but I also still want every policy that he ever put out. I don't know if that's a, a bad thing or not. Kind of like the George Soros of the Republican Party, I guess. <laughs> well, thank you, Matt. Appreciate it. I think that's a very reasonable mm-hmm. place to land, and I think you're by your uh, you're, you're there with a lot of other people. I think there's some who um who feel like they're betraying Trump when they say they don't want him to run. I mean, I don't struggle with that, but I think some people. You know, if, if in their heart they say, man, I, I, maybe it's time for DeSantis or somebody else. Um, but I feel like I'm betraying Trump and he earned my respect. He deserves my, um, you know, encouragement until the end. I, I don't think you're talking out both sides of your mouth there, Matt. Not at all. I think um, there are a lot of us, myself included. I mean, I think the biggest joke would be making speaker. I mean, you want to swing for the fence? Let, let, the, um, let the Republicans take control of the house. I mean, we live in an era of unconventionality. I mean, nothing's normal anymore, right? I mean, we're, we're having a January 6th hearing uh, with, with no cross-examinations, no adversarial points of view. Um, why not make Trump the speaker? You know, I don't know that, that he'd have so an intro. Oh, that would be great. I mean, that, that would be phenomenal. I mean, he, he doesn't have to compete, doesn't have to run, doesn't have to worry about, you know, winning or losing. His fate is in the Republicans' hands. Um, you know, could he get the votes? I don't know. I think the House is more likely... Uh, than him being a, like a Senate Senate majority leader has got to be in the Senate anyway. But um, for argument's sake, I mean, I don't know that the majority of Republicans would support, you know, Trump. I, I know the majority of the Republicans in the House would. Um, is it enough to get him elected? Well, it depends on what the margins are. You know, how good the Republicans do in the midterms. But if you want to like, like um, uh, Ray was talking a second ago in Matt's talk, I mean, we all have these, you know, perfect world scenarios. This is what I wish would happen. This is what I hope does not 
happen. Um, in my perfect world, Trump gets some um, name speaker and he aggravates the immortal hell out of everybody who never wanted him there. Um, he becomes kind of the figurehead of the house. He's the bull in the China shop that we became accustomed to and grew fond of. Um, but he doesn't run for president and the America first movement, um, it's kind of rested. I mean, it, it really, it, um, it transitions to Blake Masters and J.D. Vance and Peter Thiel and Rand Paul and some of these others um, that we, we, we got to question whether they're sincere or not. Guess what's easy to do right now in a Republican primary? I mean, in about 90% of the districts, it's easy to say I'm for Trump. And about 10%, you got to be careful, but about 90% of the Republican districts in America today, it's not courageous to say I stand with Donald Trump. It's politically expedient. I mean, it's smart. It makes a lot right. of sense to say that. Some of the um, some of the marginal districts you got to be careful with. Um, some of the statewide offices in swing states you got to be careful with. Um, but in a congressional seat that has been so gerrymandered as to give the Republican or Democrat the supermajority advantage, I mean, you're crazy not to embrace the Trump dynamic. I don't want to say Trump personally, but um, and and I, you know we go back to did anything happen? that surprised Donald Trump. Yes. I mean, I think Trump was surprised that the DOJ, FBI, CIA, some of the official governing agencies, I don't think Trump was surprised by CNN. I don't think he's surprised by MSNBC or the mainstream media. I don't think NBC News caught Trump off guard when they were so one-sided in their coverage. But Trump was probably, and some of his cohorts, were probably a little bit befuddled by what happened with the FBI. The CIA. I mean, at some point in time, somebody had to go to Trump and say, hey, President, Mr. President, um, or, or candidate Trump, that they actually doctored a document. I mean, they, they, they got reason to believe that this FBI agent doctored a document to secure a FISA warrant so they could spy on Carter. I mean, remember that? Kevin right. Howellman, um, you know, the, the, I mean, he's been charged with a crime. I don't know what his, um, I don't know where he is. I mean, maybe he's in jail with all the January 6th protesters. I doubt it, but maybe he is. But um, was it Kevin Kleinsmith? Was that his name? Uh, anyway, he's the guy that um that doctored the document that went to the FISA judge, and the FISA court judge allowed for the issuance of that FISA warrant that allowed them to spy on Carter Page. I think Trump was probably caught off guard when something like that happened. I think some of the old hands in Washington, um, and I'm thinking about Bill Barr for a second. I think Bill Barr probably laid at night going, holy crap. I mean, I expected this out of CNN. I expected this out of the New York Times. I, I mean, I never doubted for a second where George Stephanopoulos or Chuck Todd stood. But really? I mean, we're going to corrupt the FBI to keep a guy from getting elected or to make sure he doesn't get elected again? We're going to forsake the integrity of the Department of Justice to make sure this guy doesn't get elected? We're, we're, we're going to, uh, as a member of the media, we're going to not cover a bombshell of a story? because it might hurt one candidate and help another. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I think there were there were bridges he even envisioned. I mean, Hunter Biden's laptop had all this information. The media didn't just refuse to cover it. When some, um, what I'll call renegade source of information, I'm talking about some of these right-wing media sites or conservative media even sites. the New York Post. Yeah, the New York Post, I mean, which is the oldest media organization in America. I mean, it's a print publication, been wrong since... Uh, long before the New York Times and Washington Post existed. But when they decided to break a story, Twitter said, not on our watch. Facebook said, not on our watch. Uh, Google said, not on our watch. And we know this modern era of uh, you know uh, media engagement is fundamentally different. I, I think that probably caught 
even the most ardent Trump supporter by surprise. Um, the media is in the business of breaking stories and reporting news. And, and they chose to not break a story that they knew would be a bombshell. They knew it would lead to ratings and, and subscribers and, and hits and views. But they hated Trump enough to not go there. And that's pretty bizarre to me, but that's what government is morphed into. And it's not just the federal government. I think the mindset of government has fundamentally changed. I told you during the break, I want to touch on this for a second. We love the beach. I mean, the majority of people listening to my voice enjoy their time at the beach. The majority of people listening to my voice uh, who have lived here for any period of time have, have gone to the beach. And, you know, it's Ken Richardson said on the radio, uh, it's kind of a um, his last pitch to the voters. Richardson said, you know, it's hard to goof that up. We got this this ocean and this beach line, this shoreline, and it's real hard to goof that up. I read a story on Facebook, and you got to be careful about Facebook, but I think WMBF, our media affiliate, reported this. There's a there's a company or a man and a woman uh, retired from the military or about to retire from the military, started their own business, and the business was them putting out beach equipment, umbrellas, chairs. They'll do it early in the morning. In other words, I don't want to lug I mean, I'm from Indiana. I'm from Ohio. I don't want to lug a bunch of stuff to the beach every day. I got my cooler. Um, you know, I got my towels. I got a little beach back here. But, man, I don't want to put a tent up. I don't want to put chairs up or umbrellas up. Um, some places you can put tents, some you can't. But but this company does it for you. And it's Beach Gear. Uh, I can't think of the name of the company, but it's a, it's a Beach Gear company. But now the guy's been written for $4,500 worth of fines because he doesn't have a franchisee. He's not a licensed franchisee uh, with North Myrtle Beach, city of North Myrtle Beach. Now, I know Marilyn. She's the mayor of North Myrtle Beach, and I find her to be a respectable, decent woman. Um, and I'm not going to you know, blast the city council or the ordinance passed. But, but government, by its nature, has become unbelievably comfortable in how controlling and punitive they are. I mean, the, 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 the Constitution talked about it a second ago. The, I mean, we, we can debate the textualist or the, you know, the originalist and uh, the interpretist. I mean, an interpretist. I mean, there, there are a lot of different ways. In other words, you interpret the Constitution in a certain way today that maybe you didn't back in the other day. So there's a lot of variations that how to um, consume and digest and interpret the Constitution. But the, the central theme is it limits government's power. It puts the interests of the people ahead of the interests of government all the time. Not some of the time, not most of the time, all of the time. It is protecting people from its government. Now, the Constitution is a federal document, but I think the mindset of American politics is filtered down to city and county councils being more comfortable than I'd like them to be and telling us what we can and cannot do. So here's the deal. The city of Myrtle Beach has a franchisee agreement, and if you enter that franchisee agreement, you can go on the beach that belongs to you and I and God. You can go on that beach and set up someone's umbrella or their chairs but only if you have that franchisee agreement, only if you do it in the way that the city can fleece you down and, and you know, make you pay a, a fee or a license or whatever it is in, in order to do that. And, and that's just not the marketplace. Uh, it's disturbing to me. And it's not just a beach company. It's not just umbrellas and, and, and lounge chairs. It's the mindset of people at local government being comfortable saying, you can do this job because we've approved of it. You're a franchise. You've entered into agreement with the city of North Myrtle Beach, and when you put those umbrellas and chairs on that beach, you're doing it the way we said it could be done. But these other renegades and cowboys, those who just think they can you know, run a business without the government 
demanding of it, how to do it, when to do it, where to do it, what to do. That's bizarre to me. In, in, in the deep south, <laughs> in a place as red as Horry County, the, the, the county or city government, I guess the city government, city of Myrtle Beach, um, and I'd love to get Maryland. I, I may try to run down Maryland uh, to find out why, uh, what happened. I mean, did somebody put, you know, did somebody stick a, an umbrella through the back of a dolphin? You know, is there some reason that that people can't do it unless they Probably enter in? License sure, fee or it's a, a shakedown. It's an absolute shakedown. And and the point I'm trying to make, I understand it because it happens all over the country. But it's 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 weird to me how we the people and they the government have gotten to this place of, of mutual comfort. In other words, I'm okay with you saying that I've got to sign a document uh, abiding by your laws. In other words, the umbrella has to go here and the chair has to go there. Um, and and the, the more bothersome part of this to me is how many we the people have become comfortable. That goes back to conformed, uh, condition to conform, and you know you kind of do what you're told. But I think the guy has a $4,500 fine hmm. that he has to pay because he didn't comply. And um, and I don't know the details. He may have been reckless and careless, and he may have been you know saying I'm putting umbrellas and chairs out and not do it. But I mean the marketplace kind of addresses that. I mean, if someone pays you 100 bucks to put out two chairs and an umbrella here and you don't do it, guess what? You won't be in business long. I mean, the marketplace kind of addresses and deals with that. And, and I think the marketplace is the best place to regulate where the chairs and umbrellas should be put and, and how, you know, how orderly and organized you, do you do that. But we, we've gotten ourselves to a place where we're just more comfortable with the government telling us what to do than I wish we were. Let's go to the phone. We have Cocky Mike joining us now. Hey, Mike. Good morning, gentlemen. Um, you know what bothers me the most about this franchise fee deal? To, on one hand, I can understand, well, we want to make sure that you're doing things safely. We, you know, because some beaches ban those four legged uh, tailgate tents because people don't tie them down, the wind catches them, and they become a flying, you know, spear. Um, and I can understand that kind of deal, but. Who's to, who's to say that – I'm a kitchen bath contractor. Who's to say that North Mole Beach can't say, okay, you know what? We've decided that there can only be 25 remodeling contractors that work in our city. So those 25 guys have to pay us 15% of, of everything they make, um, just like those beach tent guys. You're on Polly's Island a lot. I'm on Polly's Island a lot. There's a there's a company that puts up tents down there. Those things are like three hundred bucks. Have you priced them? Those I have. Things are outrageous. Yeah, because I mean, I carry. I mean, and, I, I bought one of these tents and all these things, but I do it myself. But but yeah, I mean, when when I get out there first thing in the morning, and Mike's comments were who I read when I saw this story. I mean, I know Mike, and I read his comments, and it kind of they were similar to the way I felt. But um, but but the, you the, the point. Me well. No, but the, <laughs> the point you're making was exactly the point I want to make. So if so if it's tents and umbrellas today, why is it not kitchen contractors tomorrow? That's right. Exactly. Why is it not car dealerships the next day? You know what I mean? Instead of letting my comment on that was all this does is government overreach. All this does is cuts out uh, fair competition and it costs the consumer more money and it makes the government more money. Now, there's no I, I know a guy that he was from Darlington that used to have the Paracel franchise. And and it it was very extremely expensive to get that. He had the pair sales. I think it was North Myrtle Beach. He had two boats, North Myrtle Beach and Myrtle Beach. But he was making upwards of two thousand dollars a day per boat on those things. So it was worth 
you know, the, the $100,000 boat and all the, the stuff that goes with it. But the city gets a percentage of all that in a franchise fee or a percent. I don't know where, how it's set up now. But all that does is just cut out the free enterprise of what if I wanted to go buy a handful of tents and just rent them up? And they make the laws to limit free enterprise. Entrepreneurship, and that—that's what really bothers me the most. And that's why a tent may cost three hundred dollars, Mike. I mean, if that—if that company had competition, right. uh, the tent may be one hundred and fifty dollars. I mean, it it it, 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 right. it allows the marketplace to to you know who's doing the good job for the best price, which is the world you live that's in and the world I live in. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Thanks, Thank you, guys. Mike. Appreciate it. You know, I go back to my dad. James Schofield was a good friend of mine, a good friend of my dad's, and you know how I held James in high regard. He's passed away now. James got tasked with um. With, with scouring the county, convincing business owners that a countywide business license was in their best interest. Um, and then James was always prepared. I mean, you know that. So James comes and pay. I'm younger, so James pays my dad a visit. I mean, this before my brother and I really became the official spokespeople of our company. Uh, my dad was still kind of the guy that everybody went to see if something needed to be dealt with. So I remember James Schofield came down to my dad, and they'd known one another through business and, and you know, had mutual respect for one another. And James, James sat down with my dad, and and I mean, my dad was a, a no B. I mean, I'm telling you, he was the most blunt human being I've ever met in my life. Whether you liked him or not, I mean, whether he liked you or not, didn't matter. I mean, you kind of got the same treatment. Um, what was in his? You think I'm bad? I mean, I, I am a I am a uh, a fragment. I mean, a fraction of what he was uh, when telling like he felt. So so James is explaining to my father why this is a good idea. And my dad, I'll never get, my dad was not an educated man, not a complicated man. My dad said, James, why do I need a business license fee? And he said, because it's going to give you the legal right to operate your business in the county. My dad said, I've done that for 37 years. The hell do I need with some, I mean, I've been in business exactly where I am for 37 years. And you're telling me that I need something to be in business for 38? No. No, I, I love you to death, and I respect you as much as any other human being, but get out of my office with this nonsense. I mean, it's crazy. I've been in business for 37 years. I don't need the county telling me it's okay to run my business. They've never backed up to get my taxes. You know, they've never shied away from, from sending me a bill on whatever it is they need to fund with these wonderful, and this is where my dad would get real aggressive and colorful, with these blankety-blank programs. <laughs> And, and, you know, how many people it takes to, to plow that dirt road and clean. I mean, it, it, it would go off on how many employees and the kind of benefits the employees had. And um, my, my father felt, and, and it's interesting because he died in 2004. My dad felt that business owners at one day in, or one place in time would have trouble with employee retention because the public sector would, would be able to offer so much better benefits. And my dad said, so I'm paying my people. And I'm subsidizing them to poach my people. How stupid am I? Uh, yeah, good question. Mm -hmm. How stupid was he? Take a break. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. Now, if we were doing a podcast and it wasn't regulated, you could have heard the off-air conversation because I told Rev exactly what my dad said. Uh, obviously. Colorful. Yeah, very, very extremely, extremely <laughs> colorful, which he got that way when he really wanted you to know how he felt and what he meant. And he loved James to death. I mean, he had great respect for James, but he told James basically, get out of my blankety-blank off with that nonsense. Uh, that's crazy talking. You know better than to come down here with that. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> David in the PDA. Hey, David. Hey, good morning, Dave. Uh, hey. 
this January 6th committee, they're using teleprompters, just letting you know that. They are. The whole conversation that, yeah, they are. Yeah. Uh, Josh Hawley, he didn't use no uh, teleprompter uh, yesterday. And to me, Ken, the world that we grew up in, trans meant a trans am. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that was smoking the bandit trans am and. We we lived back in the day. I was a football captain. I dated a cheerleader. How about that? Uh, that world's gone now. But anyway, um, I'll give you a mental image. Take the album cover of Wild-Eyed Southern Boys and contrast that with Born in the USA. Uh, do you have a mental image of that? Okay. I'm on it. Okay. Well... You know, Springsteen might be your buddy, but I ain't wanting no part of that as far as the album cover. But I like Springsteen in a way. Uh, and I was going to ask you, man, um, I looked at that tour. He's not touring in L.A. I mean, in, in California. What's the deal with that? I'm trying to figure that out. I don't have any idea. I mean, I looked at the dates, and then I sent. I started aggravating Rev the second I sent. I mean, the second the word broke that he was going <laughs> on. I mean, we've known he's going to be on a European tour, but... The second the news broke on an American tour, then I sent Rev and I said, hey, this date, this date, and this date, this city, this city, and this city. But I didn't pay attention, David, so he's not on the West Coast. He's not. He, yeah, because I, 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 I look after you, Ken. I mean, I, you've already been to Madison Square Garden. He is. He's going to be in Boston. Uh, I think it's in March of uh, 23. That would be neat if you could go to see Springsteen in Boston and go to Fenway Park. But it's on the, it's on a Tuesday night. See, I, I did look at that. I mean, I've actually done. You know me. I mean, I've I've already done the work. It's on a Tuesday night. He's well, at Madison Square Garden on a Saturday night. Okay, but I'm just saying, um, if you could get two birds and one stone, wouldn't it be great to go see Dave Baker goes to all these places? Sure, he does. He's been to Fenway Park. While I'm working, yeah, sure he does. I mean, think about it. Dave Baker, he's not a Red Sox fan. I'm a Red Sox fan. Dave Baker can make things happen. But I'm just saying, that would <laughs> wow. be neat if if, if, what's that, if y'all could do that. For, and But, Ken, you've never been to Los Angeles, right? I have not. i tell you what, man. You need to go out there. Please, please, Dave Baker, make it. <laughs> give Ken a trip. What, am I his travel agent now? <laughs> thank, you, thank you, David. <laughs> Appreciate it. Yeah, David's <laughs> giving you good work to do here. I know. Um, but but I did. I mean, the second the news broke that that Springsteen had announced a tour, an American tour, um, I started comparing dates, and I said, okay. Um, and I want to tell you guys, I've seen Bruce in a lot of places over the years. Um, I've seen him seven times in six different places. Um, nothing like Madison Square Garden. I mean, there's just something. We're during the uh, Dave Allen was out in the hallway, and we're talking about you know the tour, and I, I say he's a big Springsteen fan, but he's a music and sports fan and whatnot. I mean, the Madison Square Garden is the mecca. I mean, when you go down the escalator, it's a hole in the wall. It's like a dump. But when you go down the um, the escalator, it doesn't like a dump, but it doesn't look like one of these a modern. It ain't Jerry World. How about that? I mean, it's on. Uh, I mean, when you when you drive past it, you'd go like, "There's no way that's a holy cathedral of sports and entertainment." But it is. Um, I would argue it's the most consequential sports and entertainment arena in the country. Would you? I would agree. Okay. I mean, of I, course. I, I get Just Lambeau. So much has I get, so I get much Fenway. I get Yankee Stadium. I mean, I under, but, but I mean, Madison Square Garden has had a Frazier Ali fight, a Republican National Convention, a Democrat National Convention, a Beatles concert, 
um, Billy Joel, Bruce Springsteen. I mean, name the artists. They've been there before. They had a, what, Gamecocks Elite 8 game? Yeah, there, there you right. go. That's right up there. I mean, you, you, the Under Armour sneaker that uh, Cinderius Thornwell is right beside the set of clubs <laughs> that, that Frazier and Ali were. <laughs> yeah, they'll never forget in New York City the time that South Carolina and Florida played or South Carolina and Baylor played basketball. <laughs> first ever Under Armour game, or first ever Under Armour sneakers were in the Final Four. Oh. Uh, yeah, you didn't know that, did you? No. That's the first time in... Uh, college basketball team had played in the final four on an under armor of sneakers kind I of a big day yeah they sent special sneakers and uh you can imagine i mean they're in the marketing branding but, but no um there's something electric about madison square garden uh hate new york love new york i can hate it and love it the same day um but but there's something about new york that reeks of america i mean it just does i mean when i go to new york i do the weird thing you know what i do and, and it still astounds me i look up and I see these hundred-story buildings, uh, and some are taller than that. But I see these hundred-story buildings that were built in the nineteen tens, nineteen twenties, and I'm going like, somebody was gutsy enough to go to the bank and say, "Will you loan me the money to build a hundred and twenty-story skyscraper on Fifth Avenue?" And somebody said, "Yeah." <laughs> I mean, to me, that's America, isn't it? I mean, that that's entrepreneurship, that's capitalism. That's now it cuts both ways. I mean, the the trash is on the street, and people ask you for money and. Somebody wants six dollars for a you know two week old banana, I mean, I, you know. I mean, I get it. I mean, it, it, it's a um, it, it's it's the good and bad of America. I mean, it's kind of the case of uh, you know what's best about America and what's worst about America. Um, but Madison Square Garden that night, and um, and Springsteen. I mean, that's his stomping grounds. I mean, that's that's where he's from, just across the river in uh, in New Jersey. Where how far is it from Freehold to New York City, um, Mike? It's mileage wise, it's really close, but it takes a good hour, 10, hour, 15. So it's an hour from New York City. Yeah. Because uh, Springsteen says he was like early in life, he said, I'd never been to New York and I didn't know anybody. He said, when you said something around the Springsteen's about going to New York, it's like, I'm not going to the moon. I don't want to go to the moon. I don't want to go to this. It's an hour, man. It's a city across the river. Um, but, but it's probably not, but what, 10 or 12 miles across the river from, from Freehold in New York City or maybe 20 miles? Oh. 45. Okay, but it takes an hour to get there. Yeah, uh, free, uh, Philly's closer to get there. So Philly's closer to Freehold than the New York City is. Yeah, because of traffic and stuff like that. Okay, okay. mileage-wise, they're about the same. But gotcha. It's way easier to get to Philly. Uh, what about from Freehold to where's Belmont Park, New York? We're doing oh, personal business on the radio. <laughs> that's up there. Okay, because he's doing two shows at Belmont Park, which is a horse race. I'd love to go to an outdoor concert, but I ain't risking it with the weather. I mean, that's kind of a um. A scheduled trip, you know what I mean. You yeah, got to put a lot of plans right. into that, and that's in the spring, and you don't Man, know. What, you don't know what the weather will be like you know, up the there. Storm. And um, <laughs> yeah, in New York, um, did anybody see what I put on Facebook over the weekend? Did you see it? The uh, the video of the guy uh, shoveling snow. No, you've not seen I that. Didn't see it? Yeah, I apologize for the colorful language. If you follow me on Facebook, or even if you don't, go back and look. I mean, it's not the thoughtful, interesting um, essays that you expect of me, right? <laughs> I mean, it's Jefferson, Hemingway, and Ard. I mean, when we think oh, of the yeah. great writers sure. of our time, I mean, those three names come to mind, I oh, would yeah. imagine. But go back and look several days. <laughs> now, once again, it is it is absolute unbaptist language. I mean, it is as unbaptist as you could imagine, but it is hilarious. And I thought about you, Mike, because um, we complained about the hot weather, and everybody around me was complaining about it's hot, it's hot, it's hot. And, and I found this on, I think my daughter may have found it on TikTok, and she said, hey, uh, listen, I mean, I know it's nasty, but it's foul language, but watch this. And it's a guy and his son 
um, cleaning the snow off the sidewalk or out of the driveway. And it is hilarious. I think it's from several days ago. Maybe Saturday is when I put it on um, on Facebook. And, and once again, I apologize. As someone who grew up in the Baptist church, I apologize for the foul language. But it is hilarious. It is one of the funniest things. In fact, I said, hey, you got to help me. I don't know how to copy and paste it and get it on, you know, from there to here. And she helped me do all that. And I did. I mean, I, I actually, in my comments, I said, as we complain about the hot weather, it could be worse. Apologies beforehand for the foul language or the colorful language. And it is very colorful, but it is hilarious <laughs> when you watch it. I may get you to watch it during the uh, during the next break we take, which is in just a couple of minutes. 843-661-0937. Ain't going the rest of this show without talking about the Fed. Um, we just saw an inflation report, 9.1% higher than predicted. Uh, they were predicting, what, 8.6 or 7%, 9.1%. So we're living today in the most inflationary age in the history of our country since we've been keeping record, records. I mean, it may have been different in the 1800s, or I don't know. I mean, who kept up with inflation back in the day? Um, and I don't think we had an official way to monitor police and then measure inflation. We do now, and we are living. You're lucky and fortunate enough as we speak to be living in the most inflationary era in American history. Why? The Fed. The Fed. The Fed. I want to get this point across real quick. I went back and, you know, I've been infatuated or consumed or obsessed with the Fed. The Fed, since 2010, you ready? Has printed about $120 billion a month. Now, they, they've quantitative tightened a little bit. They've taken, but on average, about $120 billion dollars a month they kept interest rates at about near zero short and long term really short term would be the the more 10-year uh, notes and five-year notes and three-year notes but they have kept interest rates at about near zero um since 2010 and they've ran the largest government deficits in human history when you take those three it's going to create an asset bubble unlike any we've ever seen. And when I go down the absolute doom and gloom road, and I'm talking about the zero hedge, on a long enough time frame, everybody's survival rate uh, turns to zero. That's that's when I believe I mean, I, that the S&P could be twice what it's going to be. I mean, there could be a, a, a 50% correction to the S&P. Um, what, what is the, the market today? 32,000? I mean, the Dow? I don't know the S&P, but the Dow's about 32-ish. Um, I mean, if you believe some of the math, it could, it could go to 16 or 17 or 18,000. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that is a devastating blow. But if indeed we are in the biggest asset bubble in history, and there's some experts who believe this. I mean, they, you know, not fringe. You know, obviously, you don't see them on CNBC. CNBC does the bidding for Wall Street like MSNBC does the bidding for Washington. I mean, I figured that out. Um, CNBC is interesting. Because they're, you know, there's guys who understand the market and ladies who understand finance, but they're not telling you the truth. They're simply carrying the water for Wall Street, just like MSNBC carries the water for uh, for Washington. This predetermined narrative, whether it's true or not, who gives a rat's rear end? But um, but yeah, printing 150 billion a month, running the largest federal deficits in human history, and keeping rates at about zero. Remember yesterday, we kind of had a tutorial on, might have been Monday, about consumer inflation. I mean, that's gas and food and, you know, the things we consume and then asset inflation. 
farms, homes, businesses. Um, we have created an asset bubble that I think so few people are aware of. And if it decides to fully correct, God help us all. I mean, that's all I can say. If the asset bubble is allowed to accurately and properly correct itself, God bless us all because it ain't going to be pretty. You know what it will be? It'll be revenge of the common man. I mean, it will be revenge of the working man. The working man doesn't have anywhere near as much to lose. I mean, obviously, he's got assets, and he's worked hard, and he's got a, a home that he owes a little something on, got a car he loans, a, you know what I mean? He's got a little bit of student debt for his kid. or But but it's not like three homes in the Hamptons, two homes in Vail. I mean, you know, a jet here and a jet there, a helicopter that lands on my yacht. I mean, these are the people I'm talking about. And, guys, there's more of those than you imagine, and they have basically um, – allowed the Fed, I don't know if they've convinced the Fed, because the Fed didn't need much convincing, but when we talk about the monetary policies of the past 20 years, uh, 12 years, 12 years, that's unfair to say 20, the past 12 years, it's led to more helicopters, more jets, more houses in the Hamptons, more homes in Vail that they didn't deserve, and I'm willing to say that. they Absolutely, they're not that much smarter than you are. They're not that much better at business than you are. The game was played, um, you know, we said yesterday, when you were born, what business you decided to get into. Um, the, if, the, if the stock market today was allowed to be priced at what it really should be, absent of the Fed, we'd all be crying, but they'd be selling stuff. I doubt we would. We'd be crying, and we'd be hurt and heartbroken and bothered, but those folks would be liquidating as fast as you could imagine. Take a break. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937. Okay, I, I did my homework during the break. I went to your Facebook page and found that, uh, I guess, the TikTok video you shared. And the, so the, so they're operating a snowblower. I guess Junior's operating a snowblower and turned it the wrong way and, and threw the snow all over the guy. And his reaction, trying to, first of all, get himself out of the snow and then clean his glasses off and yelling and cussing at Junior and there's a lady and a baby in the background standing in the door. Look, look, look closely in the background. He's trying to pick his glasses up. And, and I mean, he, it's hysterical to me. I mean, some things are just funny. And some things are funny and relatable. And where I come from, I mean, that language, man, I worked in a truck body manufacturing business with, with just a bunch of good old boys. And, and those sorts of things happened all the time. I've, I've often said, I didn't win the lottery, but had I recorded all of what happened in that metal building, in those three metal buildings, the campus of our business, I'd never have to work another day in my life. I mean, I'm convinced of that. The, the, the level of authentic humor. I'm not talking about sitcom humor. I'm not talking about canned laughter. I'm not talking about people trying to be funny. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about people Just living their life. lives in the most real way imaginable. And I would get in my truck and go home some afternoons, and I would just catch myself laughing hysterically at what happened three hours ago in Building A or over the uh, the brake press, or over the forklift service area. You know what I mean? It's just like life. Well, and you've told some of those stories, like the, the otter story comes to mind. <laughs> I'll tell that story uh, in a good way. I don't think we've told either of the stories, the otter or the zebra story, in a while. since Freehold got here. He'll think we're making it up. I think Cato believed we were making it up to begin with until I showed him visual proof, you know, the defeated zebra. And, um, yeah, National Otter Day is in May. And, and I, for some stupid reason, I remember going online and – I don't know, a night or two or three before National Otter Day. And I thought about, okay, I need to make a, um, a note to myself that, you know, Wednesday is National Otter Day, and that would be a great day to, start to tell the, uh, the otter story. Um, Freehold, you ever heard the otter story and the zebra story? 
I have not. Okay, you don't know what you're missing. We, we leaned on you for some inside information on how far Freehold is from New York and Philadelphia and all these other. Um, so when you grew up, you were a Phillies fan because you were closer to Philadelphia? Uh, my dad was a Phillies fan. Okay. Was your dad kind of a good – because it seems to me that if you grew up in that area in that time, you'd want to be a Yankees fan because the Yankees won all the time. It, we were directly halfway. So – Half of the town was Phillies fans. Half of the town were Yankees fans. But, That's the way so it was. no Mets fans, not to mount anything. Eh, not very many. No, not really. But but see, I, contrarians in their heart. I think contrarians naturally gravitate toward the underdog. I don't want to pull for the Yankees because the Yankees are going to win all the time, man. I don't want to pull for you know uh, uh, Phil Cornblue, good friend of ours, and uh, we do a show every uh, Clemson Carolina week with Cornblue. Comes over to rivals the store divided. Um, Phil grew up, here, here you are, I mean, he's about my age, so he grew up in a in a very similar time. He's a fan of the Yankees, the Celtics, and the Packers. I'm like, boy, you really stuck your neck out. <laughs> I mean, you really went out on a limb. I mean, let, let's get the regional alliance there, Phil. Okay, you grew up in Green Bay, moved to New York, and then and then uh, commuted to Boston. No, you're a Fairweather fan. You're nothing but a Fairweather fan. The Packers were good in football, so what is Corn Blue? He's a Packer fan. The Yankees were good in baseball. What, what? Come on. And the Celtics had won, you know, an abundance of world championships. I, I just tend to pull for the underdog. Um, I'm trying to think of the, the favorite. I mean, being a Gamecock fan, you're in perpetual underdog um, status, especially in the SEC. Uh, you're playing Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Tennessee. I mean, all those programs are so established and tradition rich. until next year, though. Yeah, you got your parking notice, you said. So you got to make a big decision on where – you're going to park. Yeah, I got that the other day. So it's almost time for so, me to So choose. David's right. That's how you roll, right? No. I mean, I'm close to the stadium, but do I need to be a little closer <laughs> to the stadium? Am I willing to spend I mean, Am I right? I mean, don't, don't let me mislead people. So you got to make a decision. you got to park in place real close to the stadium. Yeah. You gotta, now you're having to decide whether you, gotta, you pay a little more to get closer to the stadium. That's pretty much okay. it. Yeah. Um, yeah, in the fairgrounds. Well, I mean, I, you and Gates. I mean, the land deals <laughs> and, you know, stepping up and, you know, so. Um, but if we really want to live right, we come over to where you park. Yeah, we could. We've done that before. I'm not as close to the stadium as you are. <laughs> well, that's true. I'm on the end of a row under a tree, yeah. minding my own business near the bathroom. <laughs> that's that's the three criteria. You remember that? <laughs> we talk about parking. And where do you park? What do you want to park? I mean, why not over here? Why not over there? I'm at the end of a row. That means I've got kind of a corner lot. I got land that doesn't belong to me, but it kind of does belong to me. I've got a big tree that they fertilize um, that's growing and it's provi- by providing some shade. And I'm only a uh, lob wedge, not even a lob wedge. I'm probably a chip away from the restroom and um i mean I've, I've been offered a chance to get a little closer to the stadium but i like i like where we are so we're in july right that mm-hmm. means that this is the last month that doesn't have a college football game that'll be played because august we have some early games preseason football i uh, actually turned to esp in a little bit yesterday and thank god in heaven there's an nfl to take the nba out of you know central stage yes, or center stage uh, i mean i can i can tolerate the NFL talk, the NBA talk, I just can't. And there's nothing racial about that, nothing at all. Uh, white guy doesn't like the NBA. Well, you know why he doesn't like it? The Larry Bird retired. I mean, you, you know, that's kind of the modern, woke, enlightened version. I just, I, the NBA doesn't do much for me. Never has done much for me. College basketball doesn't do much for me, unless it's March Madness. Take a break. Back in a minute. 